Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who, Update 87, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shank from FirestormFan.com. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from AquamanShrine.net. How you doing, buddy? I am doing well. I saw Spectre tonight. We're going to be talking Who's Who. I'm high on life. <laughs> I'm high on sugar. I just ate a ton of the leftover Halloween candy. Then I took a sugar crash and slept for 20 minutes. But I'm good now. I'm here. I'm here. You know, I in the world of who's who, there's not a lot out there for people nowadays. You know, the who's who has come and gone. They do some pages on the DC page, right? Whatever. But I was in Books A Million, and I saw a book this weekend, and I decided to treat myself. I bought myself a book that has been on the market now for about four years. Fifty Shades of Grey? Um, well, okay, I bought two books. Anyway, the <laughs> other one I bought was this book from DK. It's called DC Comics, The Ultimate Character Guide. And, it, you know, the DK books tend to be, you know, you could say four kids, whatever. These little resource books. And this is a DC resource book. It's an A to Z book with a bunch of characters. You know, it's 200 pages. And, you know, it's, it, would a hardcore DC fan get in, you know, get, feel like they'd get a ton from this? Not necessarily, but it's like, you know, one page is dedicated to each character. Like, you know, here's a page on Geoforce and a page on Gentleman Ghost and a page on – yeah, I'm in the Gs. Uh, what a Jonah, way to sell it. A page Jonah, on Geoforce. Oh, sorry. John, the Joker and hey. the Metal Men and Oracle and the Riddler. Anyway, the cool thing about this book is, that, first of all, all the art's taken from comics. So this is gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. And I realized what made me buy this was the publication date. This book – this hardcover, this really pretty 200-page hardcover that somebody worked very, very hard to put together, the first release date was June 2011. Now, if you create a book about the DC Universe in June of 2011... <laughs> Quite possibly the most useless guide. Or it's the exact opposite. For those folks out there that don't really have any use or much use for the New 52... Oh, that's true. Yeah. This is the last who's who type book you will ever own. This is a snapshot of what the DC universe looked like right before the new 52. Hmm. So I bought it and I've been enjoying the hell out of it. Again, you're not getting a deep, deep dive like you do with who's who, but you get a fair amount of information. And uh, it's, it's not because like, you know, a lot of the JSA characters that were sort of the new legacy characters that were out at the time are in here, you know, lightning and um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Chameleon King, I think was his name. But anyway, there's, there's a bunch of characters in here that had just been around for a short period of time when the DC Universe ended, essentially. You know, And I'm loving it. I, I'm thrilled to have this book. So for all you Who's Who fans out there, I would recommend you pick up, if you're a fan of the, you know, the post-crisis era, before the New 52 started, DC Comics, The Ultimate Character Guide from DK. It's $16.99. You can find it at any bookstore, and I love it. So just thought I'd pimp it. And now we're going to do in-stock trades. Now, well, you know, I checked to see if it was on in-stock trades, and it wasn't. But I've got something similar. <laughs> 
Folks, this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. I'm going to go first, Rob. Yes, I am promoting a book similar to this one. This one is not available through InStockTrades, but I did pick DC Comics Encyclopedia which is a hardcover, the updated and expanded edition. This is a 400-page book, okay? 400 pages. Now, the entries are even shorter than they are in the Ultimate Character Guide, but you get a zillion characters. Like, each page will give you, like, five or six characters. It has really, 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 really obscure characters. It was uh, This was released in September 2008, so it still is a good snapshot of the DC Universe, not too long before the end. Wrapper on cover by Alex Ross, um... Written by a, you know, a bunch of different folks. Again, this is the updated and expanded edition. I've got a copy on my shelf. I love it. It's a great resource. Normally retails for $40. It's one of these big size coffee table books. It is 50% off on in-stock trades right now, so you can get it for $20. Heck of a deal. Yeah, it's a handsome book. I've seen that. What you got? Um, I am going to uh, recommend Legion of Superheroes. The well, more thing, I know, not a dream, not a hoax, not an imaginary story. Legion of <laughs> Superheroes, The More Thing Change Trade Paperback. This is a collection of the Legion of Superheroes numbers 7 through 13 by Paul Levitt, Steve Lytle, Ernie Colon, Keith Giffen, Larry Malstead, and others. 176 pages, normal price $17.99, in-stock trades price $9.89, 45% off. There is a listing in this issue of Who's Who that I was so impressed with that I actually want to read the Legion stories. Mentalia? Yeah, Mentalia, yes, that's exactly what it is. And I don't, her first appearance is listed, I couldn't find that issue in a trade on Mm -hmm. in-stock trades because there's so many friggin' books called Legion of Superheroes that I have no idea. <laughs> That's part of the reason I hate the Legion is because there's 19... Okay, 19. okay. Settle hey, down. Hey, I, no, I didn't interrupt your in-stock trades. I don't, shut the hell up. <laughs> yes, sir. God. So anyway, as I was saying, I'm recommending this Legion book because uh, that story seems really cool. This is the closest we could get. This the, this this trade ends just before Mentala first appears. So if uh, that story sounds really interesting to you when we get to it, you should give this a shot. And everyone likes Steve Lytle artwork, of course. So I'm actually recommending a Legion book. So there you go, everybody. May I speak now? Yes. Okay. I'm holding the trade in my hands right now. Okay. Uh, it is a gorgeous book. It absolutely is. As you mentioned, this is the early days of the Baxter series. Um, right. So definitely worth checking out. Grab that, folks. Remember, head on over to InStockTrades.com, your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collector editions, with uh, free shipping for orders of $50 or more. And go up to that Contact Them button in the top corner and uh, tell them you heard about them, heard about them on the Who's Who podcast, which is part of the Fire & Water podcast network. Cool. Well, folks, we have passed the halfway point. In fact, Rob, we are almost at the end of this series. We are at issue four of five of Who's Who, Update 87. Now, this one's cover dated November 1987. But if you want to pick up a pristine copy of this book, folks, you are going to have to jump in your Wayback Machine and go back to August 4th, 1987. And you better bring five shiny quarters with you because it's going to cost you $1.25. Price is up from the first run. I'm not sure how long they've had the $1.25 price tag, but I know the first series was only a dollar. Now, a couple of things I want to talk about real quick. With our Who's Who books, uh, if this is your first time listening to a Who's Who podcast, just quick uh, sort of big picture things to know. 
every single page has an entry and a character. The whole page is dedicated usually to one character. In the front, you get a full color image of the character. In the background, you get a single color, what is called the serpent. You'll see a close-up of their face, usually without their mask. Something, Some sort of imagery that describes their powers or their history, or their background. Something that's related to the character. And then you're going to get a bunch of text. It's going to give them all your personal data, which is like their alter ego, their job, their height, their weight, all that jazz, their history, and then their powers and weapons. And it's usually very, very informative unless it's about the question. Anyway, which is sort of ironic as you get into it. And our job is to describe these to you as best as possible so that you can follow along. Now, we are going to post some of these on our Tumblr page so you can see. We'll put about 10 to 15 of them out there so you can see some of the entries. Rob, what's that Tumblr page? Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. Exactly. So we want to describe these to you as best as we can so that if you're driving down the road, you're not trying to flip through your who's who at the same time you're driving because Lord knows you're just going to get in a horrible car wreck and I can't have that on my conscience. I, I can't speak for Rob in that case, but please, just be safe. By the way, that release date I mentioned of August 4th does come from uh, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Thank you very much to them. And to give you sort of a frame of reference as when this issue hit the shelves, I did uh, sort of look at what other comics were on the shelves at this time. I'm going to run through those really quickly, and then we're going to dive into the cover. So on the shelves of this time, some of the, what I call the old guard books, the books that have been around for a while, Superman number 11, which has that great Lois and Mitzelplit cover, Adventures of Superman 434, Action Comics 594, which is those team-ups. This is a great one. I don't know if you remember the old issue with Booster Gold and Superman, where Superman was shoving Booster's Gold's face into the dirt. Yes. This is the flip side one where Booster's shoving Superman's face in the dirt. I love that cover. John Byrne's great. Anyway, Batman 413, Detective 580, Firestorm number 65, the very first issue in the Blank Slate era. That's a big deal for us uh, match heads. Green Lantern Corps number 218 was shockingly still being published. Infinity Inc. number 44, which is all about Hector Hall's death. That's a big deal. Legion of Superheroes, the Baxter Series was on issue 40. The New Teen Titans, Baxter Series was on 37 and annual number 3. Outsiders was on issue 25. Swamp Thing was on issue 66. Vigilante on 47, Warlord 123, which is coming towards the end of the Warlord series. That's just a big chunk of numbers, pretty much. Probably pretty boring. But the ones that I want to get into the ones that were a little newer at the time. Blue Beetle number 18. This is where he, uh, Ted Core is actually battling Dan Garrett. Uh, Booster Gold number 22, which was just before the end of that series. Hawkman number 16. Secret Origins number 20, which was the Batgirl and Dr. Midnight issue that uh, was just covered on Ryan Daly's show by me and Stella. Amethyst number one, which is part of a four issue miniseries. Phantom Stranger number two, part of a four issue miniseries. You're probably pretty familiar with that one. Mm hmm. Is that good? Yes, it's a good series. Cool. Wild Dog number three. <laughs> Not, a <laughs> Not a good series. Not a good series. Doom Patrol number two, Flash number six, Justice League number seven, the beginning of the Justice League International era. Right there, that issue. That's uh, moving day. Suicide Squad number seven, Wonder Woman number 10. Captain Adam, number nine. Young All-Stars, number six. The last of those gorgeous Brian Murray covers. I love those. Question, number ten. Spectre, number eight. And also, I had forgotten, DC was publishing at this time um, some comics from the old pulp days. Like Sh the Shadow it was on number four. And Doc Savage had his number one issue. So, as I mentioned, volume four. Um, Rob, you want to walk us through the cover here? I thought we'd never get to it, actually. Uh <laughs> I love last week you gave me grief about reading off a bunch of numbers and then you retort by reading off a bunch of numbers. So Who's Who, Volume 4, the cover is by Todd McFarlane. It is the ugliest cover in the Who's Who spectrum to this point, even uglier than the Ernie Cologne, Solomon Grundy cover. Um, since it's by Todd McFarlane, who cares about anatomy? Who cares about placing things correctly? Who cares that 
uh, what's his name? Mr. Bones' uh, legs are too short or whatever, or, or none of the figures are dominant enough. What the hell? It's Todd McFarlane, and, you know, he's the, who's the millionaire here? So he has the last laugh. Uh, this is a very, very crowded cover. Uh, people are interacting here and there. there. There's some nice interacting, but it's it's hard for me to look at to me. This is just a really but ugly cover. <laughs> I do not agree. Mm. Um, it's not the most spectacular cover we've had. But I, I anatomy aside, because <laughs> you have to say that, uh, it's still a very striking cover. I like it. I, I like his uh, intricate line work, you know, especially he was really famous for in the 80s back then. Um, I will say... Sort of, there's sort, there's a real irony in this that this is probably the most moderate or modestly chested Power Girl I've ever seen. Yes, that is true. Given Todd's history, you'd think she'd be, you know, pretty voluptuous. But so the the featured characters really are the Question, Power Girl, Lois Lane, and probably Mr. Bones's cape. Not even Mr. Bones, but his cape. I think is probably fair to say who the the dominant characters are. A couple things I did notice. I like in the bottom corner how Magpie is sort of like uh, admiring Metallo because he's shiny. I think that's very I guess funny. so, yeah. That's clever. Uh, the, the DC bullet is actually one of the items Overthrow is chucking across the room, which is sort of cute. Now, here's something, I'm, I, and I'm wondering about this as we go through this, because this, this holds true on the cover and in the comic itself. Maureen Marauder has the pointiest boobs I've ever seen in a comic book. She looks like she could put an eye out with those things. I'm just saying. She's got one of those 50s bras. I think she must. She must. Now, look at Rampage, right behind the W on Who's Who. That looks like a John Byrne face. Really? It Doesn't it to you? No. Really? Okay, see, to me, I felt like I was looking at he traced a Byrne face. I, that's what I was wondering is if maybe he had traced it or something. It looks so much like a Byrne face to me. But, okay, maybe I'm on my own here. You're the artist. What do I know? Uh... I do like on the back, Mentalia uh, and Mind Dancer going up against each other. That's a clever pairing up. And then the Muse in the top right-hand corner kind of, you know, hovering over the Who's Who logo looks pretty cool. But I, I don't know. You, you, so you don't even like the, you know, Perez-style rocks and everyone standing on the different no, rocks No, I think, I, think I think it's ugly. I think it's an ugly cover. I think it's just busy and ugly. Uh, I, I mean, I like the historical value of that the Minuteman are on it, and this is probably the only time. Other than that big DC poster that was a mural, we're only going to see the Watchmen characters mixing yeah. with DC characters. Yeah. But I don't know. I just think this is, it's, to me, it's just, it's just ugly. It's just an ugly cover. Now, part of what he had working against him is there's a lot of groups here. Mm-hmm. You've got the Olympians. You've got the Minutemen, as you mentioned. You've got the People's Heroes. You've got the uh, Lords of the Ultra Realm. So there's a lot of large groups that normally wouldn't be featured on a cover. You know, he had to, he had to find a way to put them in here. But yeah. I don't hate it as much. It's certainly not one of my favorites. I would I would say that if you just had to look at the right half, which is the, the quote unquote cover side, it is fairly dull. I, I, I like just it. wish there was a central character. There's four central. There's four, and I wish there was one. I just think I think these covers work better with one dominant figure. I think the question is the dominant character, but the coloring makes him sort of disappear into the background. I think is the problem. That's that's my take on it. But it, what I was saying though is that the front cover, if you just look at the right hand panel, it's not very interesting. I like it once you unfold and see the whole thing. Like the marine marauder with the water splashing makes it sort of interesting. But if you just see the front panel, a Power Girl that doesn't look anything like Power Girl, and question whose colors are so muted and his jacket's taken up the whole picture, you can't see anything. So anyway, all right, let's move on. All right, on the inside letters column, not a whole lot really to comment on. Uh, somebody asks about. Uh, the uh, I like it says uh, it's about the the uh, 
fused Earths, and uh, the uh, response here is, in revising histories like this, we have seen that there's only one Superman, Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Green Arrow, Speedy, and Captain Marvel. No duplications. So that is, uh, you know, again, I know you like to say there's no Earth to Aquaman, but here we're specifically talking about that there is. Um, and I like that on the, another letter, somebody writes in, why is there a picture of the young All-Stars and no history? And then the response is, look again, Chad. We spread the history of the All-Stars over three pages and made mention of the young All-Stars there. You idiot. <laughs> so. I have to say, one thing I noticed about these letters for the first time, and maybe, maybe it's just because the way this letter is written. The very first one by Delmo Walters reads, honestly, that could have been a quote or that, that could be a snippet from one of the comments on one of our blogs after doing an episode. The way it's written and it's yeah, bolted character, character by character by character. By character. Yeah. It's, just, it's almost exactly like the kind of thing we'd find on one of our blogs, which cracked me up. Now, you said there's no Earth 2 Aquaman. I'm going to step out of Who's Who for just a second. Do you watch Flash this week? And now, apparently, there is an Earth 2 Aquaman. <laughs> well, it's not, exa- it's not exactly how it went down. Sorry, guys. This is a super minor spoiler for Flash. Basically, they just say there is an Atlantis on Earth 2. And one of, his, one of Jay Garrick's best friends is from there. That's all he says. Yep. But everyone just immediately assumed that means it has to be Aquaman because apparently no one else is from Atlantis. For all we know, he could be knocking boots with Laurie Lamaris. So, anyway. I got a lot of emails about that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, starting off this issue is Lois Lane, who I argue should be the main character on the cover because she's Lois Lane. One of the most famous comic book creations of all time. Drawn by John Byrne, of course. A really sharp piece of artwork. I really think Byrne did a... I, it's it's sort of easy to forget how good I think Byrne's Man is Superman run was. He really did what DC hired him to do was to sort of revitalize these characters and sort of give them new life and I love this listing. I think it looks really sharp for a character that's not a superhero who tend to uh, you know look kind of dull compared to everybody else. This is a really really nice piece. I like the way she looks. She's attractive without being kind of over the top. Uh, there's quite a lot of history, considering that she's sort of, for, you know, she's still sort of a new character. Um, but uh, no, I think it's a great listing. I think it's. Uh, I love the background in the in the surprint, the newsprint yep. style look. Yep. It fills in all the spaces, which is, it could have ended up looking too crowded with that effect. But it, it really comes together nicely. I think the surprint, her face is beautiful. She looks just absolutely stunning in that surprint. Now her face in the colored one. It doesn't look like Lois. It looks like, and I can't put my finger on it, it looks like somebody else I know. Like Jeanette Kahn. Maybe that's it. Maybe that is who it looks like. But the, the Surprint version does look beautiful. It looks just like I would expect from Lois. You know, she's got the stockings on with a miniskirt, which is, like, so hot. Uh, I do like in, in the entry, there's some interesting things in here where it talks about how she talks about how she's starting to become attracted to Clark Kent. So you're starting to see the Lois and Clark romance develop. Not Lois and Superman, but Lois and Clark, which is great. And then at the end here, it says um, she keeps herself in good athletic condition and has taken a police course in self-defense. Now, I think there's a lot of people at home that are hoping that police course is called Clucklore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure eventually they brought all that back. Uh, somehow, one way or another. But, folks, if you want more on this era's Lois Lane, be sure to check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast with our buddies Michael um, Bailey and Scott Gardner. Next up, two pages, really, for Lords, <laughs> Lords of the Ultra Realm, drawn by Pat Broderick, of course, of Firestorm fame. 
Uh, I actually, I kind of remember reading Lords of the Ultram at the time. This is just another one of these DC miniseries that they just tried and never went anywhere. Somebody had to have read it. I mean, you gotta give you gotta give DC credit. They tried a lot of things in the eighties. They yes, really they did. did, and not all of them were superheroes. And the, the Lords of the Ultram are not. And in fact, it even mentions the Lords of the Ultram are take place outside of the canon of the traditional. DC Universe. This kind of feels like these were created by Doug uh, Mensch, Menick, mm-hmm. Doug Mensch. Okay, this feels like it could have been a companion toy line to like the Warlord dolls. It has that kind of look to it. Uh, the names. This really feels like uh, somebody was like, "Can we do like an alter a He-Man kind of thing?" Because these guys kind of have somewhat of a He-Man-y look to them. Yep. Um, and it just—I never noticed before now that all the Lords of Ultron, there's no women in any of the Lords of the Ultron. They're all—they're all dudes. Huh. I never really noticed that. So, I I mean, there's a lot of history here. And you get all the names of all the lords. And it goes through quite a bit. So I could see why they gave it two pages. But at the same time, it didn't need to be two pages. (laughs) Especially when the artwork, they're all just standing there. They're just all, everybody's just like, hey, how you doing? Well, it's the only way they could fit all 12 of them in yeah, or all the, 14, 14 of them in. We're the Lords of the Ultram, pretty much. Yeah, we're, we're Squamaton and Marcon and Zoria and Vindum and yeah. It's a tough one. I mean, we talked a lot a couple of issues ago about Doug Menk's, um, what was it, Electric Warrior, and how he was, you know, he was trying all kinds of different stuff. And this is clearly one of those that he tried. It's sort of a fantasy-based sort of thing. I read the entry. It's uh, It ends it's on tough. a very fun note, and it's. I'm sorry. He's uh, introducing Shades of Grey, the new Overlord, hoped to maintain the Ultra Realm's crucial balance with the far less reliance on extreme and perpetual conflict. Unfortunately, and following the footsteps of his predecessor, he failed. Dot dot dot. And that's the end of the entry. Yeah. Well, they had a six issue series, and then they had a one issue special, and that's apparently what did happened. They with really? The yeah. They had a special. Yeah. They did. Wow. They did. And uh, it's funny, like, the, the logo is clearly one big logo that they cut in half and moved it over two different pages. Right, right. Um, it's, it, it's not a win, unfortunately. It's, it's interestingly rendered. I mean, there's a lot of rendering in it. He drew very detailed work. But it just the entry itself is like I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, I don't like fantasy anyway. And <laughs> oh, stop, please. But like, well, I wasn't mad at it. I just wanted it to go away kind right. of thing. Right. Well, let's do that. Uh, next yep. up is Mad Men. Well, I have to say Pat Broderick. You know, big win for Pat Broderick, uh, former Firestorm artist. So. Yeah, I said that. Uh, so anyway, the next group is Mad Men, which is a group of bad guys from Blue Beetle, Blue Beetle number three. They're not given a specific First appear like a not for experience, but like there's no one madman. It's a group, so they're given a groupless thing. It's drawn by uh, Carl Potts and Al Milgram, kind of an interesting team. Uh, I am not familiar with these guys. I read Blue Beetle, but I don't remember them. But I really like their look. They're kind of like you know a smush up of uh, Crazy Quilt and the Creeper and a little bit of the Joker thrown in. Yeah. Um, and but they look like the perfect kind of villains for for Blue Beetle. Yeah, they're a fun group. I remember them from the Blue Beetle series. They are very fun. And it, they started off as, like, there was one main guy, uh, and then he gathered together a team, if I understand the history of it correctly. Now, it's interesting, their first appearance, I looked it up because I saw that, and I saw Blue Beetle number three, second series, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's not right. They appeared in the 60s. Because I remember they came out in the Blue Beetle book in the 80s, and they first appeared in issue number three, and they were a returning villain. Well, it turns out the entry is correct, sort of. The, the Blue Beetle second series number three issue they're referring to is a book from 1967. Turns out that the Ted Cord one is actually the third Blue Beetle series, uh, according to this. Oh, if you want to okay. get, get really detailed, technically he's the fourth series and this should have been the third, blah, 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 whatever. So I thought they were referring to the 
DC published one, not the Charlton one, but sure enough, they are actually referring to the Charlton one. It just so happened that Mad Men appeared in the old one, number three, and the new one, number three. A little, oh, okay. bit, of, right. little bit of synchronicity there. Totally got nerdy in there. Sorry about that. But <laughs> Got nerdy? <laughs> We're sitting here talking about who's who. Right, it's true. It is It is a fun group of characters. Now, I have no idea why Carl Potts got tapped to draw this. I can't find any connection between him and these characters. Maybe I missed something. It, it was very strange. Uh, and Al Milgram's also an odd Jay's choice. He had, he didn't have a lot of stuff in Who's Who. But it, they make for fun characters. I really enjoyed them in, in the comic. And they also are pretty useful in role-playing games when you're f- uh, doing a group that's sort of non-powered, like a blue, like a Ted Cord kind of group. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make a good group to go up against, especially acrobatic characters. Must have been if a bitch want- to color every issue. <laughs> They, they do look a bit, like you said, Crazy Quilt-esque. So, and if you want more on the Mad Men, folks, be sure to check out the Court Industry blog with our buddy Tim Wallace. Next up is Magpie from Man of Steel number 3, drawn by John Byrne. Uh, this is a fun villain. I mean, she's very 80s with that look because uh, she's got this big uh, mohawk. She's bald, except for this giant mohawk and then these two sort of side swipe hair things on the side. What the hell is going on with that hair? Yeah, I don't like, know. Seriously, that, that, yeah. can you imagine that in real life? No. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I don't know how you really make that work. But yeah, she's basically a loon. She's a complete under loon, and it's she ends up taking on Superman and Batman in her first appearance and stuff. And in the surf print, there's a close-up of her without her, her shades on, and she looks suitably pissed. You see Superman bursting through a wall to go after her, and then you see Batman and Robin chasing after her. Uh, she's basically kind of like a Joker type. She doesn't have any powers, as it mentions, but she has a hip pouch, which includes an exploding dart gun, poisonous acid gas pellets, and a wide variety of explosive and blades she uses to create her deadly duplicate gems. Her gloves contain spring-loaded needles coated with paralysis venom. She's also set many death traps in her base at the Gotham City Museum of Antiquities, most of which have been dismantled by Batman. She's kind of like weirdly sexy, uh, except for the whole head thing with her hair is weird. But she's, you know, I can say she's got a nice body. There's no doubt about it. And her pose is very sort of like she's sitting there laying back. She's very relaxed for who's who listing. She's just yeah. kind of hanging out. Well, it's it's alluring, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you, I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, it's sort of surprising you did, but that's exactly what my note says. Is like if you cover her face, she's got a pretty hot body. Now she's fairly small chested, but she's got this outfit that's really pushing her chest up. So it's sort of like it's, it's trying to accentuate her sexuality, even though she's not a overly top, uh, overly uh, endowed character. So she she is sort of a famous just by circumstance, and that she made it into the Man of Steel miniseries. So, whereas a lot of people read that miniseries, she happened to be one of the characters in it, and therefore I think she got a lot more well-known just by the merit of what she appeared in, not by the merit of her character. Because we talk often about, she's really more of a Batman character than a Superman character. Right, because she later appeared in Batman 401. Yeah, yeah, Yes, exactly, part of the Legends crossover. Which, by the way, happens to be the very first issue I bought of Batman as a comic book collector, uh, versus like just getting comics as a kid. And it also happened to have been the last Batman comic I bought for a number of years, so I think maybe she had something to do with that. Because we talk often about how you know most Batman foes really have staying power, are fascinating, and she is the perfect example of when that's not necessarily true. Because she had the Man of Steel appearance, she had the Batman appearance, she didn't show up again for 10 years, pretty much, until the uh, Underworld Unleashed series. Then she didn't show up for another 10 years until uh, uh, some like a small Batman storyline. And then Blackest Night. That's it. Hmm. In fact, it's sort of funny. In the, um, you know, the thing in the back page where they tell you where to find the characters next? 
It says uh, for Magpie, it says, Magpie was last seen in Batman 401. Well, yeah, pretty much she was last seen mm-hmm. in Batman 401 and not again. So, it's a, she, again, there's the sexuality to her, which is kind of hot. But other than that, this character is not one of my favorites. She seems like somebody that would show up in Suicide Squad. She should have. She would have been good to take. To a, she would have been a good human shield. So. Yeah. Now her name being Margaret Pie seems like she's one of those characters that has that sort of predestination. We find on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a neat idea. Someone who's attracted to shiny things and stealing them. I mean, that's clever. Yeah, so yeah, why not? Anyway, uh, for more information on Magpie, again, check out from Crisis to Crisis Superman podcast. Next up is Marine Marauder making uh, the two-in-a-row for women with mohawks in the DC Universe. (laughs) Uh, This one is drawn by Ty Templeton. It's a beautiful drawing. I love Ty Templeton's work. I always have, I don't know why he was tapped for this. I don't care. It's really, a really nice drawing. You see her in the Serpent without her mask. You see her taking on the Outsiders. Uh, It is really, a really great piece. Now, oddly enough, it makes the... the, um, History mentions that there was an earlier Marine Marauder mm-hmm. who was an Aquaman villain from Adventure Comics. And she mentioned that she had a brother. Yep. And in the history, it surmises here that that maybe that's her brother was the other Marine Marauder. But they don't say that one way or the other. They just says known relatives, unnamed brother. The one in Adventure Comics, I think, only showed up one time. I think he just said that one appearance in Adventure Comics and then never again. So this version has actually lasted longer than that version. Um I don't think she's ever been, or if she, I, maybe I shouldn't say ever because I'm not, I don't have it all committed to memory. She, I don't think she's tangled with Aquaman all that much, which you would think she would be a natural, uh, right? Considering, uh, I love the costume. Her costume's really sleek. I think this is like, a, I mean, the name is a little doofy, but I, it's no doofier than the fisherman or anything. So, I'd like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like, why hasn't she been paired up with Aquaman more often? I think this is, it's a, it's a good fit. It does seem like perhaps that she's. I feel like there should be some history where maybe she has. Interesting, you mentioned the the brother or the other Marine Marauder. Her costume is actually similarly based on his. Yeah, it's, it's like, the exact same look, except her. She's yep. got the open mohawk, and his had a like a full skull cap kind of thing. Yep, and she's got sort of you know the the sexy V shape. I mean, it was an M, but here it's more accentuated to show off her cleavage, and it was very again very pointy boobs. Just saying. And I'm glad you mentioned the serpent. She is gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful. But Ty Templeton's a great artist. But boy, he just knocked that one out of the park. And you see her fighting the outsiders in the background. And she's doing some like, whoop, 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 whoop with uh, is that looker. Looker, looker yeah. yeah. Which is really cool. Yeah, I think it's a great listing. I really, really like it. And I get it's interesting to me that they didn't do, I guess they figured the other villain, the other version was just too minor. You just had basically yeah. one appearance. They're going to bother to do yep. it, so. But. So, very hot, very hot. And for more information on her, be sure to check out Michael Kiriskiro's non-existent Outsiders blog. <laughs> He's working on it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it. Next up is Mentala. And this was the listing that d- drove me to mention the Legion of Superheroes. Because basically, she first appeared in Legion of Superheroes, second series, number 14. Um, it's very confusing, the Legion books, because <laughs> there was a early 70s reprint title called Legion of Superheroes, and that's That's actually the first book to just be called Legion of Superheroes. Then there was Superboy, which turned into Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, which then turned into Legion of Superheroes. Then there was the Baxter book, which was also called Legion of Superheroes. So, I don't know. It's like, you technically, is this the third version? Is it the second? DC's calling it the second, but to me it's sort of technically the third. 
you're you're probably right, and it gets much much worse. Because keep in mind, there's several more volumes. Right, and yeah, after it goes this. after that. On, yeah, I think we're on volume seven now, or something like that. Yeah. So basically, um, the whole bit of Mentala is not to give the story away, but it does mention it right here. Is that she was basically she went undercover as a villain to uh, help defeat these bad guys, but she went undercover as a bad guy when she was secretly working with the Legion of Superheroes, but didn't tell any of the Legion of Superheroes that she was doing that. Yep. And she got in over her head, and she ends up getting killed in the process. And I'm like, that sounds like a really good story. I mean, I genuinely wanted to read that, and the artwork here is by Steve Lytle. I love her costume. I think her costume is uh, all yellow, green, and black, which is makes her a perfect pairing to the Marine Marauder. He uses the same colors on the facing <laughs> page. Uh, the drawing is really nice. Uh, the surprint is her. I think that's Ultra Boy. Yeah. That she's uh she's given you the. Tell, you can tell by the boots. Oh, by the boots, yeah. Uh, I I I I didn't remember this listing, and then when I reread it, because I do read it. I reread it for this show, so I was like, wow, I want to read that story. That sounds like a really interesting story. You know what's fascinating is we're coming at this from different angles for once. Um, I was not too impressed with this entry. Now, Steve Lytle's you know, artistry is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, especially the front character. She's beautiful. She's gorgeous. Boob, her boobs are a little weird, and I'm not all super focused on boobs. I mean, My can, God. Back Shag. me up, though. Their, their, their placement is they're like too far separated. It doesn't look natural. Well, she's but... frolicking. Okay, whatever. Anyway, I actually my note is actually that this is one of the more boring Steve Lytle entries, which is surprising to me because Steve Lytle normally makes very dynamic Husu entries, and this one to me is a little dull because you get two close-ups of her face in the background, and then as you said, her taking down Jonah, but that's really about it. So it it was there's not a lot there. Now I, I loved the history as well. She was part of the Legion Academy, and then just couldn't make the grade of the Legion, so that's when she she dropped out. She was they saw her as sort of a dropout of the Academy. And thought she, yeah, she had gone evil, working with the Fatal Five. So that's part of that's yeah. the team she that's was. That's a really neat idea. I really like yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, makes it. Like I said, I really want to. And I like the history contrast nice with the drawing because the drawing makes her look very fanciful and kind of like loose and like a flivver to gibbet. And that's what <laughs> you think of what the character is. And then you read the history, and you're like, wow, this gets dark. So yeah, I dig it. I dig it a lot. Good usage of that word. Uh, if you want more of the Legion Superheroes, check out the Legion of Super Bloggers. Next up, Metallo, another John Byrne listing. He is all over this issue of Who's Who. Uh, this is the, you know, of course, revised version of Metallo where he's got that half-skeleton thing. And there's all sorts of things going on. We see him putting the whammy on Superman with his kryptonite heart, and then he's grabbing Lois, and then we see him close-up of him before he turned into Metallo. Um, although this is, first appearance-wise, they mentioned that he's first appeared in Action 252. This is so the, they're, they're still keeping with the whole historic version um, sometimes Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't I would argue that this version is different enough That he probably should have gotten His own new set of first appearances But, you know, okay But I mean, he's basically Metallo You know, he's the guy with the kryptonite heart He fought Superman in Superman number one I mean, and burned Superman number one So, very, you know, sort of historic there uh, It's a nice listing I think it's pretty good yeah, it's great. Now, you mentioned he's got a half-skeleton thing. That's just the way the drawing yeah, is. Yeah, really... it's a cutaway. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't really look like that. In the he's comic. more like a Schwarzenegger Terminator. He's a yeah. robot with you know a fake skin over him. Now, the thing about this is, it's funny, though, the way the cutaway is designed, he actually looks a lot like that Legion foe, Therok, who is half-robot. Oh, right, right, right. He had the robot. He's the guy with the half-robot yep. dinghy. Thingy, right, thingy. <laughs> now, it's funny you mentioned that, I don't know if that's Lois or not with the headband, but that is just like, that girl looks so 80s, which is hilarious to me. It's perfect. I mean, it's just great. It cracks me she up. She will though. cut you like a knife. She will, <laughs> never mind. 
<laughs> That's what we needed tonight. We needed you to serenade us. It's a very busy serpent. There's I mean, a lot going on. Byrne has really put a lot in here with the John Corbin character and the history of him and the kryptonite and all that. But yeah, it's it's a very nice piece. It's it Byrne, you know, on, on all thrusters back in the eighties. So great stuff. Not a lot more to say about it. Just uh, again, check out from Crisis to Crisis for more on these this era of Superman. Next up, Mikado. Uh, he's a villain from the Question. It is drawn by Dennis Cowan and Greg Brooks because you know what you're figuring we got a guy with a bloody axe. Let's get Greg Brooks in on this. Oh, uh, you said last <laughs> month we weren't going to make any more of those jokes. <laughs> hey, when it's right here in front of you. Anyway, the drawing—it's uh, really a striking figure. It looks very Bill Sienkiewicz. In fact, I think it. Yes. Every time I would look at it, I kept thinking it was Bill Sienkiewicz. I'm like, oh no, 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 it's actually Dennis Cowan uh, and Greg Brooks. It's a it's a guy with his hat and he's got the Fu Manchu mustache. He's got overalls, and giant boots, and he's carrying <laughs> a giant bloody axe. Uh, this is, I mean, this is this is a an a, a costume he's wearing. He doesn't actually sort of look like this, uh, but uh, it, it's it's a really really striking drawing, and um, I love the sort of surreality of it because on his shirt that he's wearing under his overalls. It has like a checkerboard print, mm-hmm. and they really didn't bother to sort of make the checkerboard follow the folds of the shirt. It's like it's a flat checkerboard, which I always kind of like that look. Yeah. I think cool. it's just kind of a surrealist kind of thing. So I dig this. It's a really I, – I don't remember reading this. These I think I gave up on the question by this point. But uh, I really dig this look. It's a really very, very striking character. It's very different than any other character you would see in a superhero comic. I mean, you yeah. mentioned the overalls. He looks, I don't know if it's just the baggy clothes, but he looks overweight. I mean, he's probably just actually muscle-bound or whatever. He's 5'10", 205, so he's not particularly overweight. Gotcha. And and, and all of this is, he based his, his appearance on the Gilbert and Sullivan oh, right. operata, Makata. name, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And he's he's got these little white circles under his eyes, which is like makeup, I guess, for the in the play, which makes me, I can't take him seriously. With those white circles under his eyes. Well, just I, think I think the axe would make you take him seriously. No, okay, I might take that seriously. I'll give you that. But. <laughs> I mean, he's a doctor. In his secret life, he's a doctor. Yeah. Uh, and he would, he said he was, his, over the years, Spalding, that was his name, gained a reputation throughout the area as one of the few straights who cared about the people. However, all the pain and suffering Spalding saw took its toll, and a deep psychosis developed. Spalding developed, decided the time had come to exact justice from those who inflicted the pain. Hmm. Now, I've never read this question series, so I don't know a lot about it. I mean, it's well-regarded, obviously. You know, I, I don't think there's a question blog or podcast or anything out there. There used to be many years ago. There was a blog, yeah. Yeah, but I, don't, I think that's gone or, or no longer active. Yeah, I, I think, could, yeah, I, I think I, I could be mistaken. If it is out there, I apologize. But um, that's, that seems like you know, territory for anybody out there. Should take, should take that up and, and run with this because question's a fascinating character. Yeah, yeah so this is a cool. I said, and this guy's not so much of he's, – He's kind of like the Reaper, you know. He's a bad guy, but he's he's doing it because he thinks he's doing the right thing. And then he yeah. angles with the question. He's not so much. He's not. He's not out just killing innocent people. He's out killing criminals and stuff like that. So, by the way, I, I just to mention to follow up on what you said about the, the the drawing, the background, you know, really is great use of purple. It's like a really strong purple. It sort of fills the whole serpent up at the bottom, and it's. It's probably, it's very different. It's you mentioned Zakevich is a good mention. Uh, maybe I would think like Richard Case from his Doom Patrol run. Uh, it's it's very different, very very unusual. Nice stuff. Next up, Mind Dancer from Booster Gold number one, drawn by our pal Dan Jerkins and Woo! Joe Rubenstein. Uh, that's and it's you know Dan had a lot of ideas in these early issues of Booster Gold. He had a lot of villains. It was, there's a lot of his creations here. Uh, she is wearing a costume from head to toe except for her hair. You know, we didn't mention she's red-haired. She could have been mm-hmm. in that uh, red-haired super team we were talking about <laughs> earlier. 
Uh, and she basically has, like, psychic powers that we see her blasting Booster Gold with her mind, with her whoop, 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 whoop powers. Um, and uh, what else do we have to know about her? Oh, she's, oh, she was a part of the uh, the 1000. Well, like the other Booster Gold characters from the 1000, her history is very, very small. Right. And the image really dominates. And I really like the design of this page. Because she's out on the left. Rather than in the center, she's far left. And it's almost like she's been cut out. There's a white background behind her. And there is some Red Serpent on the right-hand side where you see her, like, flying above these buildings. You see her, as you mentioned, take a down booster. Her logo is very different. I thought this was a sharp, very different design. This page stands out to me. Uh, the way her body stretches all the way down. And, as you mentioned, she's hot. I mean, she's really hot. So I, I was very, very pleased with it. She's also worth noting she's the second in charge uh, to the director in the 1000, which is pretty cool. You know, a woman in a power, position of power. And you can see how her costume changed, too. If you look in the Serpent, you'll see where she's flying over the buildings, her costume, uh, all the different color splashes, because she wears a, a blue and purple combination, almost like a kind of like Aquaman's camo suit when he was swimming mm-hmm. underwater. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that one, though, is very angular. There's very, you know, very angular sections. And the one on the, the left here in the bottom, it's very flowing, very wave-like. So I'm, I'm in favor of this. Again, again, I have a weakness for hot redheads. So. Well, I, yeah. and, and I remember her in Booster Gold. I, she was one of the villains I liked in Booster Gold quite a bit. All right. Next up is the Minutemen, which are the uh, set of 40 superheroes from Watchmen. Uh, it's got a nice, you know, it's a portrait by Dan Gibbons, of course. It's basically taking a shot of them from the series of them posing for a photograph. And it's Silhouette, Mothman, Dollar Bill, Night Owl, Captain Metropolis, Comedian, Silk Spectre, Hooded Justice. This has got to be the only who's who listing that ends with the mention of one of the characters being beheaded. <laughs> and uh, the attempted rape. And the attempted rape, yeah. So yeah. thanks for that, Alan Moore. Uh, yeah, it basically just, just gives you – there's a lot of history here because it basically just details everything that happened to these characters as you read in Watchmen, if you read Watchmen. And, of course, you should have by this point. You know, I had forgotten how developed – because the, the history takes up half the page. I had forgotten how developed the Minutemen were because they're really they're, – they're background characters. They're not all that important to the story. Uh, I mean, Comedian is, and Silk Spectre to some extent, but the rest of the characters are just, you know, kind of filler. But I've forgotten how much time they had spent to flesh them out, because as you're reading through here, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to know about these characters that I'm reading. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was in there. Oh, yeah, that was in there. So I also like how, as you mentioned, it's a scene from the thing where the, uh, from the comic itself where the photographer's taking the picture. You actually see the photographer in the foreground taking their photo, and the shadowing is done in such a way that you can actually see the flash from the camera mm-hmm. causing the shadows on the wall behind them. So I thought that was really well done. Well, good job on the inking. Yeah, it gets into some of the sordid history of, or not the sordid, but what happened to all of them. Dollar Bill got got killed uh, while trying to stop a bank robbery because his cape got caught in a revolving door. Uh, the sil- <laughs> the silhouette was uh, kicked out because it turned out she was a lesbian, which is something that if you saw the Watchmen movie, they tip right at the very beginning in the opening credits. They talk about Hood of Justice and the comedian, and they don't get into uh, Mothman. Happened to him. He ended up uh, going crazy and becoming like kind of just a doddering old man. And talk about Captain Metropolis. So yeah, if you read this, you're like, boy, this is some really sad stuff. But uh, right. that's uh, that's Ellen Moore for you. So one thing that I saw in here that I didn't remember, and I'm looking for it now. But Dollar Bill, if I remember, it was sponsored by banks, wasn't he? Yes, that's why. Yes, he was like a bank's personal superhero. Yeah. Yeah, like I I didn't remember that from the from the comic, but you know. It, it's probably in there, and I just yeah. forgot. You know, Silhouette being gay, I mean, nowadays, if she was on a team, that she'd become, like, the instant celebrity. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, next up is Mr. Bones. And uh, somebody uh, obviously dropped the pay stop because we do not see the personal data heading 
above Mr. Bones. It just starts with his alter ego. Doesn't mention anything about personal data, but yeah, it's okay. Paste-ups, you know, probably, mistakes happen. You are really on your game tonight. Like, all of my notes, you are hitting, and it's very awkward. Because oh, well, I'm, I'm used much. to catching stuff, and then I usually go, Rob, did you even read this? Clearly you did this time. See? I told you, I'm on one cocaine tonight. I'm really high up. <laughs> so this is Mr. Bones. It's the, it's the first time the people at home have heard that. This is from, from <laughs> I me, heard it all night long. From, from Infinity Inc. number 16. Uh, there's also no history uh, banner either. So, again, this 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 one uh, sl- slipped through the cracks. Uh, so without Brenda Pope, the things just go to hell. What happened it's, was uh, Mr. Bones actually touched the Pay the copy editor, and uh, his cyanide touch actually killed them, so they didn't right. finish their job. Fair enough. Uh, it's drawn by Todd McFarlane, so that means the cape is just stupid looking. Uh, it's got more. It's just. It, it, oh God, yeah. This is. Go, go ahead, talk about Mr. Bones. I don't care. Really? That's all you got? I I just I yeah. You don't want to talk about Helix? He's uh, Why would I? <laughs> All right. Obviously, Rob. Yes. Needs- okay, Frank. Here I am. Here I am. <sighs> Rob needs to do another line of coke while I while I talk for a minute about Mr. Bones. By the way, the reason why Rob's doing so much cocaine tonight is just simply because he's exhausted and it's very late at night. It's way past his bedtime. But we are that dedicated to getting this who's who out. And apparently, Spectre was more important than us recording this. So, um, I feel I like this drawing. Because, again, this is the era of Todd that I liked. I liked him on Amazing Spider-Man before he went to his own Spider-Man book. I feel like this is when Todd was coming into his own. Is the cape ridiculous looking? Absolutely. But it's a comic book. I'm not reading a comic book to read necessarily truthfully rendered proportions. So a cape that's absolutely insane but looks totally badass just for the sake of looking badass, I'm okay with that. I am too. I just don't think it looks badass. I think it looks stupid. I mean, like when Kelly Jones or Bernie Wrightson draws Batman cape, Batman's cape and it looks like it's 30 feet long... That's ridiculous, but I think it looks badass. But this, to me, just looks like it just looks stupid. But I, I've made I, I've said my piece about these a, stupid a couple times now. Yeah. Apparently, Todd offended you pretty badly. I think face to face, and you just haven't told us that story yet. I but anyway. wanted that baseball so bad. <laughs> anyway, this is when Todd was you know really rendering stuff with a lot of small micro lines, really fine detail, like the legwork on Mr. Bones' mechanical leg is really, really detailed. The hashing, hash marks in the background, the skull, the face and the lines in the skull. When you're trying to cover up bad drawings, add more lines. You said your piece. Shut up. I mean, come on. I like this piece. Yes, it's ridiculous, but I don't care. I love it. I love it a lot. So, And then as you read the entry, there's certain things I forgot. I had forgot that he used to speak in rhymes. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd have to go back and reread those Infinity Eggs, but because to me, in my mind, he's Director Bones. From the DEO, you know, in a business suit. That's how I remember Mr. Bones. So, uh, I, you know, I forgot about Helix. I forgot about the rhymes, which just cracked me up. Now, interesting things about him, you know, he's got invisible skin. He's got this cyanide touch. And, you know, one thing that you, know, you didn't see in comics back then too often was he smokes. He smokes cigarettes. And that's sort of a taboo thing in comics. But because he's a skeleton, I guess they can get away with it. I don't know. But I, I, I felt like this was Todd coming into his own. You know, I feel like this is one of the characters where he was able to make his stamp and make the character his. So, And again, if you want more Mr. Bones, check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast, because they are... Uh, no, not From Crisis to Crisis. I'm sorry. Check out the uh, Tales, J- of, the Tales of the JSA podcast as they're hitting into the Infinity Inc. stuff. Yeah. Uh, next up is Mr. 104. <laughs> <laughs> I love that name. Who used to be Mr. 103, by the way. <laughs> drawn by Richard Brunning and Carl Kiesel. This is one that, again, that kind of... 
they kind of threw as a gimme because Richard Brunning was a DC staffer. Like he was in their like design department. Oh. So and I'm sure I'm sure Richard Brunning probably knew how to draw because I think he was he was an artist, but he wasn't known as an artist. So I think they kind of just gave him this one as a goof. And I love his pose. <laughs> he's just like I'm so excited being evil. He's just like yeah. so he's so into it. He's a Doom Patrol villain, and in the Serpent we see him fighting the Doom Patrol. Uh, he's his costume is very fifties. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, he's got the little Saturn pattern on his thing, and he's got these big collar and the big flaunt flounce boots and the gloves and stuff. But he just he's got this squinty face, and like as you mentioned, he was Mister One Hundred Three previously. Uh, he's just he has, he says Mister One Hundred Four is total control over his entire range of the periodic chart of elements. <laughs> How fearsome! He can physically turn into one of the elements or a combination of several to create various weapons and traps, retaining total control over the transmuted molecules of his body. He is an average hand-to-hand combatant. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, he knew 103 different elements. That's why he was named Mister Element. I mean, Mister 103. And then he discovered another one, so that he changed his name to Mister 104. I have to change my business cards. <laughs> I do love that he's got the, as you said, the raised gloves. He's just, he's so excited. And, you know, it's funny, like, they don't tell you what his height is. They say it's variable, but I get the impression he's got to be really short. He seems he short, looked, yeah. And maybe that's just the rendering, I don't know. But he he gives the appearance of, like, a Napoleon sort of complex guy. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a hoot. Absolute hey, hoot. Do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. You know, it, he looks sort of Legion of Superheroes, though, if you look at him. Yes, like that design does. looks yes. very Legion of Superheroes. But if you want more on the Doom Patrol, be sure to check out our buddy Doug Zuija's, uh, uh his blog, My Greatest Adventure 80. And then definitely check out the Waiting for Doom podcast. Really enjoying that. It's a podcast focused on Doom Patrol. And they, they have some really fun uh, quirks and angles they do. Like they have a Doom clock and things like that <laughs> to uh, counting down. And they talk about the last time the Doom Patrol appeared. And it's, it's, it's a fun show. It does mention here that he's currently in Bell Rev Prison which means he could be in the Suicide Squad if they wanted him to be. You know, he may have been. <laughs> we don't know, because I didn't take the time to research that. <laughs> uh, next up is mon which is a revised listing, which I think is one of the few of the situation. One of the few that they um, actually gave that banner to. There's actually, there's, there's quite a few revised. But, but I mean, one. but they don't, they don't mark them as such. Well, Metallo's marked as revised. It's is just it? at the bottom rather than across, like a, like they've got sort of a, what they call a Johnson box on the mon one, where it's the top left-hand beg your angle. Do they do you not use that term? <laughs> Just sounded okay. funny. Oh yeah, you're uh, right. It does say that. It does say that from Metallo. That's it says it on Metallo. It, um, funny, Lords of the Ultron doesn't have it. Uh, Lois Lane has it as well, and there's several others. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. Oh, all you right. Should, all someone right. take that soundbite where Rob just goes, "You're right, you're right, you're right," and we'll use that later. <sighs> Monel, anyway, this is the Legion Superheroes character. First appeared in Superboy number 89. Goes way back. He's basically. Superboy. I mean, in terms of his power mm-hmm. set, and he was just trapped in the Phantom Zone for many years. Uh, I never really—he was a Legion guy. I never really could get into him too much because he just—he was just like he's just basically Superman with an inverted color scheme. Um, the art is by Chuck Patton. Uh, it's kind of unusual for Chuck Patton to draw a Legion character, and an inks by Robert Campanella, who I'm completely unfamiliar with. They make kind of an interesting combination. He puts a lot more line work on the Chuck Patton than you'd normally see. There's a lot of stuff going on in the background in the Serpent. We see him flying in space, and we see a close-up of his face. We see him with um, Shadowlass. It's it's not bad. It's, I don't love it, though. I tell you what, it, you know, I mentioned earlier with Mikado how well the Dark Purple Serpent worked for him. The Dark Purple Serpent really works against Monel here because of his color scheme, which is blue and red, which makes purple anyway. Um, it, it didn't. It didn't work well. It, it it dominates it too much. Like if you were to take the purple away, 
The figure looks nice. It's a great looking figure. As you mentioned, his color scheme is absolutely purposefully reversed of Superman's. There's no doubt about that. And the, and the drawings in the back are nice. I just think if they had done the purple at a much lighter color or maybe a, I don't know, I don't even know what color would have been the right one to use. I'm, it's not my forte, but it's, it's a great drawing. It's just, I think the coloring really hurt it. Now, interesting things about Monel. You know, Monel came from Daxum to Earth in the 20th century. And originally, pre-crisis, he met Superboy, and, and Superboy ended up having to put him into the Phantom Zone for a thousand years because he got lead poisoning. Well, here, it's post-crisis now. There's no Superboy anymore. How are you going to fix that? Well, that's where John Byrne came up with the idea of the pocket universe Superman. Superboy, I should say. Which is why the, this injury is revised, because it deals with the pocket universe version of Superboy, which was an incredibly complicated fix. There were other ways around that. I don't know why they felt the need to. Now, personally, I really like the character of Monel. To me, like, and we did something over in the Legion Super Bloggers recently where we talked about the death of Superboy and stuff, and a little Russell Burge and I wrote a, like, a point-counterpoint kind of piece about Superboy, and I actually said, Superboy doesn't fit in the Legion for me. My own personal canon, I don't need Superboy, because I came to the Legion after Crisis, so Superboy's not even a factor for me. And, in fact, I feel like he sort of detracts from the Legion and what makes the Legion great. And if I want a super strong, you know, faster-than-a-speeding-bullet character, I'm going to call Mon-El rather than Superboy. So, for me, Mon-El is the premier strong guy of the Legion. And I'd much prefer to read about him than Superboy. So, I, I love this character. I like him quite a bit. All right. And I, I could look at Chuck Patton drawings all day long, so. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting combo because it's, it's not something you never normally think of for Chuck Patton. So checking out Legion Super Bloggers for more, folks. Uh, next up is Moonbow, first period in <laughs> Fury of Firestorm number forty-three. Uh, the and uh, the, the uh, drum by uh, Steve Bovey and Dick Giordano. We see Firestorm in the background. She's taking a name, Madam. Uh, the logo looks like it was really thrown together. Uh, by it looks like it was just markered up and done. Moonbow, we're, we're finished. Um, <laughs> but it, and it, it talks about that she got into a life of crime, and then it ends with her talking about that she, uh, Firestorm basically let her go because he realized that she was, as he put it, puts it over her head. And it mentions that it says, in any case, whether because of her, her wound, she was wounds in this fight with Firestorm, uh, or a growing wisdom not demonstrated before, Bree has not assumed her Moonbow identity again since that night. Well, I think the real reason is that this was sort of uh, towards the end of Jerry Conway's run on Firestorm. These are some of the issues that aren't necessarily uh, looked upon as fondly as his earlier work. So I think the character was just not fondly remembered at the time because she's she's um, she's very much a Green Arrow character. You know, she's a bow character. She she actually goes to these two rival gangs and steals from each of them, trying to infil- uh, implicate the other one. Starts a gang war basically. She gives the stuff away to charity. And uh, one of the things that I find interesting is, and I don't know, I, I'm not a bowman, so I don't know. She has a steel longbow. Would that even work? Like part of the longbow thing is that you pull it and it makes the longbow bend. It's part of a big thing with longbows. I, could you bend a steel longbow? I don't no, even know. No idea. Anyway. Um, she, she, ha- you know, she appeared in the Firestorm issue. She appeared in one issue of Wonder Woman, and that's it. And then she completely vanished. Uh, being a Firestorm character, I know quite a bit about her, folks. She, uh, she probably would have been a really good character to have met up with Green Arrow. You know? I mean, it's a bowman. It just makes logical sense. Or she would even be a great character to throw in the Arrow series. I mean, that would actually make mm. a lot of sense. One of the things she's really well known for, there's a great, first of all, she's hot. Not necessarily in this drawing, but she's, she's a very smoking hot chick. And there's a great cover of issue number 49 of Firestorm, where she's at, it's sort of like an askew sort of angle. And she is hanging upside down, about to go into a swimming pool. 
and she's got this horrified shock look in her face. And again, she's you know she's very chesty. She's got a lot of cleavage. It's it's sexy as, as she's hanging upside down. Um, and Firestorm swooping in to save her, but it's, it makes a great cover. So um, that's probably part of what to be remembered. And she she's one of Firestorm's characters that sort of get picked on for her obscurity because no one remembers her anymore. I did a I did a Google on the character just to see where she had appeared since then, and I came across some really weird fan art that's <laughs> like. Like, I found one of, uh, you know, Leanne Harper, who's uh, Roy Harper's daughter, the little girl. I found one of her as an adult, as the adult Moonbow, which I found was interesting. And then I found another one where, this is just bizarre. She's on a bed, tied up, very all kinky, right. very kinky all and right. Firestorm's tickling her feet. What the uh, hell is all that right, All right, all right, all right, all right. I am stopping there, don't From worry. Blue Beetle, the second series, number five. Well, hold on. <laughs> But um, Steve Beauvais, apparently he's a production guy for DC. Yes. So, yeah, he, he has very little artwork out there. Well, if you want more on Moombo, um, you're, you're not really going to find it. But there's a site about Firestorm you can check out, a Firestorm fan. I don't know. I, I can't vouch for it, but it's out there. There are apparently many sites you can learn about Moombo. Just don't look at them at work. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so, uh, again, next up is Muse, a Blue Beetle villain, set from Blue Beetle, number five. He is. He looks like, well... I mean, he looks he looks kind of like the Joker. But I mean, sort of. Uh, crossed with a little bit of like a wild dog. He's a guy with this sort of clown face with a big suit, and he's got a rock and a gun with a bandolier with all these bullets on him. Uh, he's, you know, your typical. I don't know. He's just like your. He's non. He's non superpowered. <laughs> Twenty two pages of sighing, huh, Rob? Yeah. Uh, see now, that's so not fair. I have been very energetic through this episode. I'm sorry that not every. Effing character in this book excites me. I'm sorry I can't keep up with your impossible standards. <laughs> God. Just hey, we're at the halfway mark. Come on, hang in there, buddy. Damn Blue Beetle villain. Who gives a shit? Okay, fine. I'll take this one for a second. I, like you, when I, because I read the Blue Beetle run, I didn't watch, I didn't read it when it first came out. I read it later in life. And I saw this as a Joker character as well. Like a weak sauce Joker is kind of what I thought it was. But the more I read about it, especially in the Who's Who entry, I didn't get it. He's more about being a thespian and, and the theater and the production rather than being the Joker. So the, the, the smiling face is actually more like the thespian mask. Yeah, the, the, right, exactly. Yeah. In fact, he carries these two uh, – he carries gas weapons. And one is laughing gas and one is tear gas very specifically to be based on the theater masks of the smiling and the we, frowning theater We see theater him putting one of the masks on in the Serpent. Oh, do we really? Oh, yeah. okay. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, oh, yeah. So his look is very unsettling. I mean, looking at it is like it, it doesn't sit well with me. He's got sort of, like you said, sort of the uh, Harlequin, Joker, you know, jester sort of costume. But then the bullets and the bandoliers and the creepy face with the eyebrows, it, it's unsettling to me. So he's the son of a mafioso, and he was hoping to get out of the mafia family, so he tried to take him down by, with this identity, and it all kind of backfired on him, and, it's, and it turns into a tragedy. So it's uh, it's it's on the surface I didn't like it when I first read it, but now that I see the big picture, I think it's fairly clever, pretty well done by the guys. Okay. Now, did you mention the art team here? Uh, no, I did. Martin King, I don't know who that is, and Dennis Chanky. Who's Martin King? I don't really know either. I did a bunch of research on it. I couldn't. He had very few credits, hmm. and I couldn't figure out why he was doing Blue Beetle. So, again, we mentioned earlier. Uh, if you want more on Blue Beetle, check out the Cord Industries blog. The Serpent is um. It's sort of lacking. I don't know. Like the bottom picture of the serpent is great. You know, it's got him and his squad, and they're all there with their guns, and he's like, you know, 
sending them forward and it's like action. But then the other background pieces are just, you know, not as, not as great as they could be. So anyway, next up new Atlantis, the, uh, basically the setting for Arion Lord of Atlantis. First appearance in Warlord Annual Number Two, art by Art T. Bear and Jim Valentino, later of uh, Silverhawk and Image Comics. Uh, yeah, this is uh, you know, Arion, Lord of Atlantis. Actually, it's not. Well, it's no, war- he, well, well, it's no, it's interesting, and I only bring this up because Arion, you're right, is sort of the center character there. He's not mentioned once in the whole text. Right, it's really all about it. I, I, Warlord. It mentions talking about Jennifer Morgan. It talks about uh, what's his name. Uh, the what's the guy? Oh, what's Demos? The, Demos. Yeah, something yeah. like that. I and I'll give you credit. I mean, for your lack of interest in this one, I even wrote down really boring texts. <laughs> is in my notes. <laughs> Probably interesting comics, though. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a recap, and it is dr- boring as hell. Uh, you know, Lords of the Ultra Realm in this one, and you're in a competition. So, and and I don't understand why Arion's there. I get that it's probably the same Atlantis that he was, you know, the Lord of years ago, and but why he's the central figure in the art just blows me away. I have no idea. It also shows Power Girl in her current Atlantean form when they revise her to be an Atlantean. Well, it, well, it's her Warlord costume. Apparently, she was, I guess, a supporting character in Warlord for a while. Because of the Atlantis connection, because New Atlantis is part of the Warlord, yeah. you, you know, you universe. see her on the cover of Warlord in the back, in the inside yeah. cover. Yeah, I had no idea she was part of that character, part of that book for a while. I, didn't, I had no clue. Um, you, you mentioned Valentino; he had done almost no DC work at this point, and then uh, T Bear actually drew Warlord. I didn't know that. He's, I like him as an inker quite a bit. So, if you want more on Warlord, check out Professor, Professor Allen's eventual Warlord podcast. I think. I have, which I have deemed to be so. I think Jim Valentino drew the Brother Power of the Geek listing way back in the Who's Who number three. <laughs> really? I that's, think that's Valentino. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. You know, I do want to talk about the art a little more. I'm sorry. Um, it's a nice cityscape. You're like above it looking down onto like a town square. And you've got little inset pictures. You see this guy who helped found New Atlantis, which apparently is wearing the same helmet Travis Morgan wears down the line. You see uh, Machiste up there. And then you see a bunch of weird, I guess, either foes of New Atlantis or bad guys. One looks like Black Hand to me, actually. But it's uh, And then again, you see uh, Arion and Jennifer Morgan and uh, Power Girl. So it's, it's a pretty piece. So, but again, horribly boring. Uh, next up, uh, two-page spread for the Olympian Gods from All-Star Comics number 8, drawn by George Perez. Uh, as you might expect, it's beautiful. I mean, he puts in all these figures and has all these wonderful background images, and he gets in all, the, so many of them are really revealed through their body language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you've got, uh, you've got, what's, Mercury, is it Mercury? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Mercury. Fly, flying in the background, he looks kind of carefree. You've got Aphrodite in a very sexy kind of, but sort of innocent kind of pose. It's almost like a schoolgirlish kind of thing. You've got Ares, uh, Hera, and then you've got some, because of the um, sort of unreality of the place, you've got some characters coming in at a 90 degree angle and some coming from a 180 degree angle from the rest of them. The architecture is all M.C. Escher. Uh, it's really beautiful. It's absolute, and you see, you see Pan down at like sort of uh, hiding down in the, the bottom playing his little flute there. It's really a gorgeous, gorgeous piece. But what would you expect from George Perez? Right. Well, I like Dionysus is pouring the wine and it's going uphill to get into his glass because, yeah. like you said, the Esther sort of stuff. And by the way, we said Mercury, but it's technically Hermes because they're Greek. Right, right, right. But he also goes by Mercury because apparently Zeus and Hermes are also where Shazam gets his power from at this point. So they make a point of actually saying that in here. So it is beautifully rendered. You're absolutely right. It's stunning. Uh, Aphrodite is smoking hot. 
Um, so it's it's a really really well put together piece, and the history is interesting. It's a lot of times these Greek gods where they're reciting mythology that really has very little to do with comics, you know, its origins. It gets kind of dull or boring, but this this reads quite nicely. So it's well written. It mentions Wonder Woman two, even though they've already decided there is no Wonder Woman two. Well, I think didn't they mention in the letters page that we're going to keep consistent with the numbering though, or whatever? I think I well, but I mean they also do say on the inside page there's only one character. So, yeah, so, good point. You know. So if you want more on Wonder Woman, check out Diablo Frank. He uh, he has a blog called uh, Diana Prince, the New Wonder Woman, and he has a podcast that he's done one or two episodes on out there as well. Next up, another two-page spread for The Outsiders. And this is the era that everybody loves of The Outsiders. It featured the Atomic Knight <laughs> in, that, in that costume that Chag loves. Uh, yeah, it's Atomic Knight, Batman, Black Lightning, Dr. Chase. I, I think putting her as an actual member is stretching it. Geoforce, Halo, Katana, Looker, Metamorpho, and Windfall. Again, everybody's favorite, Windfall. Um, I lo- you know, I don't have to say how much I love Jim Apparel. I've said it practically almost every episode of both these shows to this point. This is not one of his greater pieces. It looks a little rushed. Um, you know, it just, it's, Batman's pose is a little wonky. Um, the Outsiders were kind of, I think, past their sell-by date at this point. So uh, this is, you know, it's fine. It's perfectly fine. And it's, it's a revisalist thing. It gets up some it, – it, it updates the team and stuff. I barely even remember when Atomic Knight had joined. I, 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 I must have been buying the book still, but that, that's a, only a completely vague memory to me. I'm completely confused by this entry. It definitely updated because, first of all, Batman's in it. Yeah, um, he's back. He was back with them. Yeah, I had no idea. Like you know, in, in my knowledge of the Outsiders, was he leaves and they become you know, it goes from Batman and the Outsiders to the Outsiders, and I didn't know he ever came back. Around he, around issue fifteen of the Baxter book, he came back. Okay, I guess sales were down. Uh, it wasn't called Batman and the Outsiders at that point again. It was just still called the Outsiders. Now it says in here that he left originally with a conflict of ideologies, and all I can think that must have been over Looker's costume. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know Atomic Knight was part of the team, ever. I had no clue, and it just, you know, it's that much more ugh to me when I see it. Windfall, I, I remember, had been a part. Now, hold on, Dr. Jace, wasn't the previous Who's Who entry for Outsiders all about how Dr. Tra- Jace betrayed the team? I think so, yeah. So what the hell is she doing back in the team two years later? Well, they need a, they need a person to do all this stuff. I, I, I don't know. I, sorry, guys. I, I'm, not, I'm not in. I'm not in. Okay. But if you want more on The Outsiders, again, check out Michael Chiroscuro's non-existent Outsiders blog. <laughs> Next up, Overthrow from Blue Beetle, number 15. <sighs> um, <laughs> I guess if you enjoy Highlight, you will yes. enjoy Overthrow. Uh, <laughs> his uh, occupation is a revolutionary anarchist and terrorist, which is really uh, very nice. He is not at all scary. This he is one of the mortiest morts to ever come down the the mort path. Although I do love his logo, it really looks like something you would see on the back of a little league jersey. Yes, you would. You absolutely would. Yeah, <laughs> he is very much a product of his time. I mean, let's face it: the '80s. I mean, high lie. Like I'm sure there was a storyline developing where he was going to team up with someone named Greyhound and the Gambler, and uh, you know, because. Those you probably don't even know. Like you kids probably don't even know what I'm talking about. You know, in the '80s though, like you know, your parents would go to the highlight place and bet on the games. You know, just like they were the dog races and stuff like that. Um, I mean, we're, it, it is very much a sign of the times. I mean, somebody obviously, uh, if this is Blue Beetle, that's what Len Wein, isn't that right? I mean, he probably went to a highlight game and thought this would be a great supervillain. It's got to be how this happened. I mean, why not 
kept a villain called Trivial Pursuit. I mean, that was an 80s thing, too. I mean, what the hell? He'd probably, if Blue Beetle had gone past 24, he probably would have got a very green and purple costume. Uh, he's got the mask. It looks sort of like a catcher's mask. And his hair's all poofy, sticking up over it. Now, I do like in the Serpent, though. I mean, first of all, I don't know. Did you, did you say the art team? I mean, no, he didn't. Ross Andrew, yeah, and Joe yeah. Rubenstein. Yeah. I mean, that's great. Now, I, I wondered why Ross was involved. Turns out he drew some issues of Blue Beetle. I didn't even realize. And ones with overthrow. So, I mean, the Serpent's really nice, though. You've got a shot of him chucking the balls are coming at you. You can see sort of the, the energy coming off of him. They're actually energy balls. He's not throwing highlight balls at you. And he's hitting Blue Beetle with it. And then, you know, it's, it's a nice, really nice, I mean, rendering-wise, it's really well done. It's just he looks ridiculous. It's kind of what it boils down to. And we don't know his identity at this point. So in the background, when you normally get their face without the mask, you still he's still got the mask on. So, And again, Court Industries, check it out. Next up is Paradise Island, again by George Perez. This is a revised listing, and it gives us these little insets of all the different spots, the Royal Palace, the Temple of the Oracle, the Island of Healing, the Senate Chamber, the Coliseum, and Doom's Doorway, which is the, one of the greatest names. That sounds like a superpowers playset that never got made. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's basically Paradise Island. And then there's a faraway shot of the whole island, and then in the Serpent is Wonder Woman and Aphrodite and all the other Amazons. It's pretty straightforward in terms of uh you know history i don't know i guess did they do a paradise island in the first who's who yes I can't, they absolutely they? did okay. i want to say it was even a two-page spread or it? it was definitely more spread out you could actually see oh, other it was. islands that's right says. that's yeah. right that's right that's right and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because the only note i have on this is a comparison between the original one and this one and all i gotta say about the update is where the hell are the kangas <laughs> i'm just i'm drawing the line in the sand there Okay. Go check out Frank's podcast. Okay, fair enough. Next up is Parasite. Uh, now, interestingly enough, this, I mean, this Parasite is a new version of the other Parasite, and he mm-hmm. looks different, but yet, I mean, he, here he gets his own set of first, he gets his own first appearance, which is Firestorm 58. Did you read my friggin' notes? I mean, you're, it's amazing you're hitting this uh, kind of stuff. Yeah. Yes, this is, this is the big screw-up in the book. As far as the first appearance, you know, everything else is supposed to be the pre-crisis first appearance. Yeah, this I mean, the original, the, the original, yeah, the original Parasite is from like Action Comics three hundred something or other. Here he is listed as Firestorm, so uh, that's kind of unusual. It's drawn by Joe Brzezowski and Steve Mitchell. Joe Brzezowski was the Firestorm artist, right? Correct. Right. I've always liked Parasite as a villain, and I always thought he had. I don't like this version, the green and orange one. It looks like Drax the Destroyer, but I like the purple. I like the. <laughs> The purple version a lot, and I actually thought he would might even kind of work in live action, like a guy who saps your energy. I think mm-hmm. has a lot going on. I guess maybe they think he's too silly looking, but I, I was always kind of like an underrated Superman villain. No, I think he's great. I mean, because he can match whoever he fights by he absorbs their powers, and then he has those powers. You know, so he makes a great foe for just about anybody in in, the, in Firestorm. You know, he fought Firestorm, he fought Firehawk, he fought the Suicide Squad. I mean, he took down practically. Or, didn't completely, but he almost took down the Justice League International, Suicide Squad, and Firestorm and Firehawk all by himself, simply because Multiplex was there. So he copied Multiplex and then made a bunch of dupes of himself, and each one picked up different powers. So he was a one-man supervillain team, and he was really powerful. And I like this, for, I mean, probably because of my, my exposure to him in Firestorm, I like this incarnation of Parasite. I don't care if he's green or purple. That doesn't matter to me. But I like the sort of humanistic-looking Parasite versus where he becomes just the giant purple amorphous blob with a giant Parasite mouth. I'm not a, I don't like that, that look, per se. But uh, 
he's pretty cool. I mean, he's just he's so dangerous the way they set him up in those books. They really, really showed how dangerous he can be instead of being an idiot. Now, there's other issues down the line where they did some interesting stories where he somehow, like this is way post-crisis, but he like duplicated Lois Lane. And so Superman was actually mm. like, knocking boots with her for a while. Oh, no. It was, it was, I mean, that wasn't the thrust of it. The thrust of it was like Lois. When did Cullen Bunn, right? From Paris. <laughs> well, there you go. The thrust of it was that Lois Lane was becoming really bitchy. And it turns out that it was really Parasite in disguise as Lois and things like that. But then if you back it up, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Superman and her were horizontal. You know, things like that. But, um. Interesting character. I mean, the whole thing with Rudy Jones. I've seen lots of different versions of Parasite. Like the Superman animated series version of Parasite was really cool. They did a nice job with him there. Uh, it's very sad here that you know, they say that you know in prison he's being kept alive and allowed to live off of rats, absorbing the just enough energy from the rats at Pell Reeve to survive. Ooh, poor guy. That's it's Guantanamo Bay style there, man. Mm. And there's a nice image of uh, Parasite fighting Firestorm in the Serpent, and a very nice close up of uh, him face to face with. Firehawk, and he's sitting and he's replicating her powers as he's burning there. So it's well done. I thought Joe Brzezowski did a nice job on this image. All right. If you want more on the character, obviously visit Firestorm fan, but also check out the Task Force X podcast. It's one of the headcasts by our buddy Aaron Moss. Next up is the Peacemaker, or actually just Peacemaker. Uh, of course, one of the Charlton characters first appeared in Fighting Five, number 50, which is great <laughs> alliteration, uh, drawn by Todd Smith. A lot of history here, uh, quite a bit. And then one of the things that's really funny, it mentions at the end, it talks about how he was recruited by Colonel Valentina Vostok, negative woman, mm-hmm. and uh, to work for her agency. And it says, this alliance proved short-lived as Peacemaker's fragile mental state shattered and he turned renegade. After several encounters with Vigilante, see Vigilante 2, Peacemaker's insane rampage was halted and he was taken into custody by Vostok's agency. As of this writing, the Peacemaker is still at large, fighting terrorism mostly in Europe. So wait a minute. They took him They, they, they took him in, and then the next paragraph is, yeah, he's at large, and he's out in Europe. So obviously, it didn't last terribly. It does talk, it mentions, you know, his encounters with Vigilante. That led to the Vigilante being shot to death. It's oh, a geez. little more than an encounter. Yeah, that's one of the, that's written by Paul Kupperberg, one of the great all-time Vigilante, one of the great all-time comic book runs, I would say, because it was so nuts. You just felt like Paul Kupperberg was just going for broke with every single issue. And the vigilante tries to get Pacemaker to stop, to basically stop going on this rampage. And he touches him by his glove. He like grabs his arm. And Pacemaker's like, you're touching me. You really shouldn't do that. And then he massacres Vigilante and shoots him to death. Just... I, thought, I thought Vigilante committed suicide. No, that's the other Vigilante. Oh, this is the interim one. This was yeah, the interim one. Yeah, okay. it's fantastic. It's great. They just, I mean, I mean, the idea that this guy wants to, the whole line is like he wants peace so bit he'll fight for it. And like, yeah, okay, that makes a whole lot of sense. So, you know, this is one of these characters that's managed to last all these years. I think his helmet is completely batshit nuts. <laughs> it is absolutely uh, the design, and of course, he is the model for what would later become the comedian and Watchmen. Now the only thing I like, I've always thought the helmet was ridiculous looking. It looks especially ridiculous here, but they do mention in here how he's hearing voices. Yes, and they're sort of in the helmet. Yeah, it's like, talking to him. Yeah, right. So that that actually kind of like made me like the helmet all of a sudden. Like it's I really re- crazy looking though. That's but I reversed my opinion on the helmet that, that quickly when I found out like there's voices in the helmet talking to him. I'm like, ooh, okay, I can get on board with that. So the stuff with Vostok, was that also in uh, Vigilante or was that like an action comics? I don't remember that. Or something? No, yeah, I don't I don't remember that being in Vigilante, so I don't I don't think so. 
It's, you know, there's interesting stuff in here. Like they talk about where his dad was a Nazi sympathizer or ran a, a prison camp or, you know, concentration camp and things like that. I mean, just really heart-wrenching stuff on his history. And then uh, it does say in here how he's uh, – hang on, I want to find this. He has – Peacemaker's costume doubles as flexible body armor, impervious to all but the highest caliber weapons. And I'm looking at him going, except for the fact that he's wearing short sleeves. <laughs> just saying, shoot him in the arm muscle, and you're done. But cool-looking character. Um, I, You know, what would be fun, it would be if someone were to do a Charlton action blog or podcast where they cover – you know, uh, all those characters like Peacemaker and Nightshade and Captain. I mean, we've got, there's some Captain Adam stuff and there is some Blue Beetle stuff out there, but there's a lot of other characters. Sarge Steele, you know, all those characters that eventually ended up in Law by DC would be fun to see, like a blog or something dedicated to these guys. DC tried to do that. They tried to give the Charlton characters their own series as like Block, an anthology in the blockbuster. Yeah, it didn't, didn't yeah. quite work. This, this looks like, a, Peacemaker looks like a character if he was an action figure, you would lose his accessories very quickly. Because he's got a holster, he's got a grenade, he's got a machine gun, he's got a sword. You'd be constantly like, damn it, I lost the sword for Peacemaker. Uh, but it would be cool because he'd have so many. That's true. Next up is the People's Heroes. Mike Barr never met a supervillain group and he didn't like. Uh, these are all a bunch of Russian supervillains uh, drawn by Gemma Perro, of course, first appearance, uh, Outsiders number 10. Pravda, Molotov, Slate, <laughs> Hammer... <laughs> Oh, I can't even. I can't I'll even. do it. I'll do it. I love go, this go ahead. so much. It is so ridiculous. I have fallen. I've never read a comic with these guys, but this is so ridiculous. I love this. This is. This might be my favorite page in the whole thing, because as you said, Mike Dubbar never, never. Uh, how did you phrase it? Never. Never met a supervillain group he couldn't like, he didn't like, or couldn't create. Right, and it, but it's always because they're themed. Yeah, he loves. It's loved never themes. just a collection of different villains. Yeah. It, there always has to be a theme. I mean, he did the Masters of Disaster. He did the Force of July. Force of July you know, things like yeah. that. So this is great. So it's all Russian stereotypes. You know, you, you get um, Bolshoi. Bol- Bolshoi, who is a da- a dancer like a ballerina. You get. Um, I'm trying to read this is really messy. Oh, Hammer, Sickle and Hammer, obviously right. the that. You get Molotov, who's Molotov. carrying a Molotov cocktail. Pro, uh, Pravda, Pravda. Yep. which is uh, that's like, that was like the name of their newspaper. Yeah, their their state run newspaper. Yeah, yeah, and sickle. And, then, uh, and sickle, which it's just hysterical. I love this whole concept, and the entry is a lot of fun to read. It's just so corny. I I, I mentioned I'm I'm such a sucker for these things. Like their belt buckles all say C C C P, which is hysterical. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, I loved this side of things so much that when I ran a role playing game. I would create themed teams like this. That's how, how ridiculous I was. Like, I'll tell you just real quick, an example I made that's very similar with this. Uh, the Force of July inspired me to create my own superhero team called the Revolutionary Warriors. And they were a foil for our superhero groups we would fight. And, you know, had Plymouth, Declaration, Valley Forge, Colony, Liberty Kid. I mean, just ridiculous stuff like this. I love these themed groups. Mike W. Barr, bless you. Bless you for the creation of these things. The Atomic Family, or Nuclear Family, keep it. Mm, love them. Absolutely love them. You want more on uh, the People's Heroes, again, be sure to check out Michael Kiriskiro's uh, absolutely non-existent Outsiders blog. We're just willing that into existence. I am doing everything humanly possible to make this happen. Next up <laughs> is Phantom of the Fair, who first appeared in Secret Origins, number seven, Ryan Daly. I think this is, is this like the only character that actually first appeared in a Secret Origins? Um, well, there may have been a character who was introduced in Secret Origins and then later went on to their own series, but right, this is but certainly like a one-off kind of thing. I mean, some of the history of this, though, I mean, Roy created this character to sort of fit him in 
to the history, and he was going to be sort of the thread that connected a lot of characters. Because when he appears here at the fair, uh, Roy uh, really went back and, and kept reappearing at the fair in these early Secret Origins, and lots of characters were there. You know, Johnny Chambers was filming it. Sandman was there. Crimson Avenger was there. All these other characters were there when the Phantom of the Fair was there. So he became sort of like the character that you could thread a bunch of other characters together with. Yeah, basically this was a guy who took it upon himself to take over the World's Fair in New York City in 1930 and basically be sort of the ghost of the fair. Uh, he, they talk about that he knocks over Mayor LaGuardia and he grabs his radio mic and he says, uh, Many women of the New York City, this World's Fair is now declared officially haunted by the Phantom of the Fair. It sounds kind of doofy, but you have to kind of remember in the historical context, like new, World's Fairs used to be really big things. Oh, yeah. They don't exist anymore. But they used to be really like, you know, they drew people from all over the world uh, for the so And the New York one was really big. And there's there's whole volumes of scholarly study about it and things like that. So I really like this idea. It's kind of absurd because uh, it's very kind of Scooby-Doo almost. Uh, you know, I would have owned this fair hadn't been for that stupid Sandman. But uh, the costume he's wearing in all black bodysuit, he is ripped. And he's got a red cape. So it's very, very simple. Uh, you can almost say almost on the dull side. But I, I, I'm a kind of like a fan of, of fairs. I, I like uh, of those World's Fairs. I have, some, I have an old catalog from the 1939 New York World's Fair that my uncle got me, an original one. So it's like I, I kind of dig this idea even though the character is kind of silly. But it, you can see why Roy would love this. This seems like everything Roy Thomas loves. Well, it's very fitting for Golden Age characters. Yeah. I mean, Golden Age characters had very simplistic costumes. So he, he looks sort of like he could work in that sort of setting. And um, he's got the Parisphere in there, which became a, you know, it was at the New York World's Fair and became a very big thing because it was All-Star Squadron headquarters later on. And uh, I think some of this comes from, besides Roy's love of the World's Fair, and, and from what I understand, he actually attended it, was that there was a comic book called the New York World's Fair comic, which came right. out in 1939, right. which had one of the earlier appearances of Superman and had the first appearance of Sandman simply because it was published or it was released before the first issue with Sandman and the regular comics hit the stands. So I think that's part of his fascination with it is that. Now, did you mention the artist? Uh, no, I did. Michael Baer. Who went on and did a bunch of different stuff for Roy in the, uh, in the years uh, with All-Star Squadron and Young All-Stars and all that. Um, and it's, it's – the art's a little too much, I think, actually. It's, you know, like the, the four little inset pictures aren't quite all that great. So it's, it's like it's not one of Michael Bear's better pieces. But, I mean, it, it does serve the purpose of making you feel like it's a Golden Age character. And you see Sandman in the background fighting him. So it's, yeah, it serves his purpose. Yeah. But – for more, check out the Secret Origins podcast with uh, our buddy Brian Daly. Next, <laughs> I caught that. Next up, Power Girl, uh, the 19th version of Power Girl. We've had in this series. Uh, it's drawn by Mary Wilshire, which is an unusual choice. I've I was not terribly familiar with her before this. I really like her artwork. It's very very sort of simple and very uh, I don't I can't even very almost I don't want to say children's book illustrator style but it's just not your typical comic book superhero style romance uh, comic yeah i guess so a little bit uh i really like it i mean i really like it and i wish she had done she's done a lot of comic book work but just not a lot of stuff for dc and i think this is her only who's who listing so uh but at this point power girl had been revised and they worked in all the stuff with warlord and atlantis and all that nonsense so i could care less about all that stuff 
but she looks really nice. She's just standing over with her hands on her hips, and it's it's a fairly desexualized image, as probably as desexualized as Power Girl is going to get, except for maybe the ugly front cover. Uh, so, but it, it's a it's a nice listing. It's a set. I really really like the artwork. I like the art style. I don't like it on Power Girl, uh, and, and I'm not saying I got to have the super crazy chesty Power Girl. It's not what I need, but I I don't get the sense of a powerful girl. I feel like I'm watching a teenage girl dress up for Halloween is what I feel like I'm looking at here. Uh, I would love to see this, as I said, in a romance comic or even just a, a different type of story, uh, female-led character, but it just doesn't work for me on Power Girl. So, But you do see uh, Arion in the background. You see you're saving some kids. You see you're punching some rocks. Um, you, 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 didn't, you sort of glazed over the origin. I mean, the gist of it was she was Superman's cousin. She was Supergirl, essentially, of Earth 2. Now, in the post-crisis, what they did was they had to retcon it somehow, so Paul Kupperberg connected her to his Arion series. And so she was now the granddaughter of Arion, who had been sent forward in time. Very complex origin. Uh, and you can hear a full study of it over on the Secret Origins podcast. They did a really big discussion about it. But sent her forward in time, made her think she was Superman's cousin, up until the crisis, and then she realized she wasn't, and then she found out she was actually related to Arion, and then tied it all in with the Atlantean stuff. It wasn't, you know, it took 20 years for them to get her origin fixed, when Jeff Johns came along and said, no, never mind, she's from Earth 2 that doesn't exist anymore. And it just worked. It worked really well under his guidance, and so I think that was really what would have worked. Now, I had an epiphany as I was getting ready for this episode, and I, maybe I'm not the first person to put this forward, but I came up with a way they could have fixed Power Girl's origin after Crisis. Um, it occurred to me that we talked about Legion earlier, and the inspiration for the Legion of Superheroes was the 20th century Superboy. Apparently, they, they would look back in history, and Superboy was such a hero, it inspired the three main characters of Cosmic Boy, Saturn Girl, and Lightning Lad to create the Legion of Superheroes uh, when they band together. So you take out Superboy, and you've got a problem with that origin. So the idea I had, and the way they fixed it, by the way, is they took Monel and had him be a hero in the modern day as Valor, and he inspired him, which is still a little bit ridiculous. So I had this idea, what if they had just simply said, you know what, Power Girl's from Daxum. She's a Daxamite. And she thought she was Superman's cousin, but she was wrong. And just leave it at that. That's all they needed to do. They didn't need to do all this complicated stuff with Atlantis. And then they could have even said her exploits were what inspired the Legion in the 30th century. That would have worked really, really well. And, uh, I, and she could have been kind of a segue to the Legion. And I think that would have been a really cool connection and uh, a powerful female lead hero. I would have, I would have really liked that. So That might have worked. So the sad thing about Power Girl is that, you know, she, she was a real hothead in the All-Star comics when she first appeared in the 70s. A lot of it was sort of feminist, you know, the feminist movement and the anger that comes with that. But later on, by the time she got to Justice League Europe, she was just mad all the time. She became a bit of a one-note. Well, she became a bit of a two-note character. One was she was mad all the time. The other was that she was crazy, sexy, hot with boobs that were too big for her head. I mean, they were literally larger than each. Each one was larger than her head in the drawings by that point by Bart Sears and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I did some research on Mary Wilshire, and as near as I can tell, she didn't draw Power Girl leading up to this. But it looks like, and someone would have to validate for this for me, but it looks like she drew Power Girl in some, some, something that came out in 2006. Hmm. So, I didn't know interesting. that. Interesting. I'd like to know more about that. I think she drew a Windfalls backup feature in Outsiders. Oh, jeez. Not an wow. ongoing strip, but like a one off thing. Now, that. There's a character she would be really great at. Windfall. Young, teenage, you know, kind of character. Next up, everyone's favorite, Protector, 
His first appearance is New Teen Titans Special Edition. <laughs> and for those of you that might be wondering, what the hell is New Teen Titans Special Edition? It was a giveaway comic that they uh, they produced in Marv Wolfman, and it wasn't drawn by George Perez. I forget who drew it. Uh, oh, I've got all the details. Oh, you've on got this. it. Okay. Anyway, it was a special comic, basically to talk about the uh, to keep kids off of drugs, and they couldn't use Robin. Uh, for some weird arcane lawyer reason, I think they had their like someone they had their rights were tied up. But anyway, so they had to create an entirely new character to fill in for that space for Robin, and that's who we got is the Protector. And he has a red, blue, and purple costume with a butt ugly face mask. Uh, and he uh, said that he gets his own listing in Who's Who, drawn by June Brigman and Carl Kiesel. Near as I can figure, someone lost a bet, and that's the reason this is in Who's Who. There's, it makes absolutely no sense for this to be in here because the protector, at least at this point, had never appeared in DC continuity, not once. Right. The only place he had appeared were in, as you mentioned, these three special giveaway comics. Now, these comics are interesting because they weren't just like giveaways you get at the comic shop. These were distributed in schools. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was issued this comic book in middle school. I kid you not. I was given these comics in middle school as part of a drug awareness program. There were three of them, actually. The first one was by Wolfman, Perez, and Giordano. The second one was by Wolfman, Ross Andrew, and Joe Giella. How do you say that? Giella? Joe Giella, I think. Thank you. The third one was co-written by Wolfman and Joey Cavallari, drawn by Adrian Gonzalez and Joey Giella. Um, so the, the art started at a really high pinnacle. I mean, Wolf and Perez Giordano, really? Wow. And then it kind of gets, you know, goes down and not that it's bad by the end, but it's just not quite as dynamic as that first issue. In fact, the first one has speedy carrying a kid who looks like they've just died. I mean, probably have a drug overdose and it's really powerful stuff. And it, the, the deal was, as you mentioned, they couldn't use Robin. But they still wanted to have that lead character. So Protector is not only in these issues, he is the leader of the Teen Titans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, as a kid, um, you know, you hear things when you're a kid. You know, there's, there's all kinds of BS. And back then we didn't have the internet, so it was just what you heard word of mouth. What I had heard as a kid, and I can find nothing to back this up, though, was that the issue had been drawn with Robin. Then they found out they didn't have the rights to Robin, so they had redrawn Robin character wow. as the Protector. Is that true? I doubt it, but that's what I had heard. The gist of it was uh, Keebler co-sponsored these free comics. That's with, right. With, that's yep, right. With the U.S. government. Um, the, I mean, U.S. government produced these guys. This, this wasn't just, you know, D.C. doing it. So Keebler co-sponsored it, uh, these drug awareness issues. But the problem was Robin at some point along the line had been licensed to Nabisco. Nabisco for the cookies. Yep. So, I, mean, I guess there was Batman 66 cookies. Who knows? Whatever. So they couldn't use Robin, so that's where you get this character, the Protector. Again, the leader of the Teen Titans, this character that none of us had ever heard of. Um, in fact, his appearances are, uh, you know, those, those three comics. He's in Who's Who. He shows up apparently in a, in a Teen Titans secret files from like 1999 or 2000. And then somebody decided to have a little fun, and he apparently makes an appearance in the Teen Titans Go comic and the Tiny Titans comics. I mean, clearly those are kind of his laugh, but... Um, it's really it's fascinating. I did a lot more history on this. I didn't know also they actually produced a PSA commercial, television commercial, featuring the Teen Titans and the Protector instead of Robin. This commercial's real. You can find it out on the interwebs. I haven't been able to find one with audio. I've only been able to find the, the video of it with no sound. But they apparently, and I didn't know this either. Maybe Tom Panarese can fill us in a little more. But they were developing a Teen Titans cartoon by Hanna-Barbera that took place in the Super Friends universe. 
They Did mentioned, you know that? Yeah, well, okay. They mentioned that. Do you remember that book, uh, 50 Who Made DC Great? Do you remember that book? No. It oh, was, yes, 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 I do. Yes, it was a one-off. It was a mail-away thing, right? No, no, no. I got it at a comic job. It was a oh. one-off. I remember that. It was a one-shot special edition commemorating DC's 50th anniversary, and it was different listings about people and events and things that made DC what they were in 50 years. Like it was like one page on Julie Schwartz, one page on Marv Wolfman, and they had a page on Hanna Barbera. And they talk about Hanna Barbera developed Super Friends, and they said, "What basically? What has Hanna Barbera got? Work? What are we? Work, what are they working on now?" And they said, "Well, we're working on Teen Titans and Amethyst cartoons." <laughs> and that's the only time I remember a Teen Titans cartoon ever being mentioned. Of course, they never made one, but at, at, at that point, they were. It was in the works. Well, you can Google this, okay? Or go to the YouTubes and look for it. And type in like a Teen Titans PSA uh, drug awareness or something like that. It'll come up. And uh, it has it's cyborg with the same model type drawing as he had in Super Friends, but Raven is in there, Protector's in there. Um, I want to say Beast Boy's there. It's bizarre, and it, you know it's this short commercial, and it's about drug awareness. Again, there's no volume, so I wasn't able to hear it. Maybe if someone can find it, you know, do more digging and find it, they go for it. But Robin was not intended to be in the Teen Titans cartoon because he was already in Super Friends, so. Fascinating stuff. And, and the entry here, again, it, that's why I say it's got to be a joke because there's no reason to have this in here at all. I think someone was just getting, you know, as a laugh. It's been four years since those comics were given away at this point. The Protector was always kind of like a who the hell is the Protector kind of character. So I think they put this in here as a gag. And the June Brigham art and Carl Kiesel, it's okay. Um, and they, they went to a lot of effort to create history for him here, talking about how, like, Nightwing taught him how to fight, and they, they draw some comparisons between him and Nightwing, and again, that's sort of a nod and a wink, sort of, for those who know. Now, interestingly enough, apparently these comics have been reprinted, and I, by the time this episode airs, by the time the people hear us talking about this, I will know more, but it'll be too late, the recording's already done, but there is something out there that was produced a few years ago called Government Issue Comics for the People. 1940s to 2000s. Oh, that sounds like a fun comic, a fun it book. It does, yeah. Uh, I just ordered it on Amazon. Uh, I got it for nine bucks, by the way, on Amazon. So check it out. Government issue, comics for the people, 1940s to 2000s. Apparently, it reprints a lot of these, you know, comics that were given away in schools because there's a ton of them going all the way back to the 1940s. And apparently, they give. Uh, I guess there's an online code where you can go. Like some of them have just snippets of the comics, and you can go online and read the rest of it. From what I understand, I'm looking forward to checking this out. I can't wait. To, it'll it'll be here by the time the episode goes up. So if you guys want to know more, you can email me or shoot me something through social media. I'll let you know what I find out. But it's. These drug we'll awareness do a comics, whole episode of the show about those. You know, it might not be it might not be a bad idea because I mean, you think about it. There's the Power Pack one. I would love um, to do. We should do that. I, that would be a fun show to do. I'd be interested yeah. in doing that. Yeah, there was Power Pack. Um, I think Power Pack teamed up with Cloak and Dagger, if I remember right. There was a there was a weird one with Storm about smoking. There was Spider Man with about molestation. Oh, jeez, really? Okay. There was the Superman. There was the one with Batman about landmines. What? Yep. I've never even heard of that. Okay. One about yeah. Batman, one about Batman, about the like the scourge of landmines that, that are buried all over different countries over there in like Asia and Europe and stuff. Wow. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, I'll let you know how this government issue thing is if it's worth cool. checking out. So. All right. All right. Bye, bye, Protector. Uh, for more on the Protector, somebody start a Protector podcast, please. <laughs> uh, say hello to uh, the one and only Q character here. The question. Uh, well, character. Oh, yes. Character. Character. That's why I say character. The question, 
Uh, this is a revised listing. It's drawn by Dennis Cowan and Bob Smith. Very, very nice drawing. Again, very Sienkiewicz-y, but I don't mean to d- diminish Dennis Cowan. So he's, he's his own artist. Uh, it does mention here that uh, very early on in the New Question series, uh, Lady... Uh, this guy named Furman hires Lady Shiva as an agent of death, and she battled question near senselessness, and then Furman had him question, shot and dumped in the harbor. And that's like the end of like the second issue of the question. <laughs> and it literally ends with, oh, the question's dead. And you're like, what? And then, of course, not, not, not quite. He ends up being brought to this uh, monastery, and he's trained by Richard Dragon, and he tr- comes back, and he becomes, you know, sort of like slightly otherworldly version of the question. But everybody's familiar with this character. Really cool listing. He's mixing in, uh, Dennis Cow is mixing in the Serpent in with the regular front color drawing. The the Q is sort of mixing in and out. So it's a really nice piece. And you see Lady Shiva there. I think that the Serpent of Lady Shiva is taken from her who's who listed. <gasps> I thought the same thing. Yeah. I didn't go back and I didn't go back and check it, but I looked at it and I thought, oh, "That's a nice Nagel drawing." Um, and then just remember the Nagel paintings yes. in the eighties. So, but I, I thought the same thing. I was like, "You know, that looks like that's just yeah. a lift from the other one." Yeah, I don't and, know. And Someone the, go back and check it for us. And the fact and the fact that it's not part of the rest of the serpent, like it's yeah. like its own little thing. So they just went and lifted that. But uh, no, it's very nice. I mean, the questions one of the you know, I mean, I'd say of all the characters DC bought from Charlton, I'd say the questions one of they got maybe alone Blue Beetle and Captain Adam got their they got their money's worth. Because he's sort of an enduring character. He was used a lot on Justice League Unlimited. Uh, kind of yeah, a big they deal there. So, him there. Yeah, so, he's, you know, it's a really solid listing. And the drawing's really quite nice. Well, we've talked about this before on the show. Is um, it, Interesting, you know, the question uh, was then adapted for Watchmen as Rorschach. Right, of course. And it's interesting to see how much Rorschach then informed the later development of the question. You know, yeah. It's a snake eating its own tail there. Now... I have a lot of issues with this entry, actually. Now, visually and artistically, it's beautiful. You know, you mentioned the, the smoke is sort of forming, the smoke around him is forming a question mark over him, which is really nice and sort of mixing with the serpent, really cool. But the text, quite frankly, it's lousy. The text is really not well written. It is The text is a brief recap of the question series up to this point, which is only like on issue nine or something like that. It doesn't tell you the history of the question. It doesn't tell you how he became the question. It doesn't give you his origin. None of that. It's just telling you a little bit about his series that's already being published. And um, I look, Denny O'Neill doesn't have a writing credit on this issue. So I, I, it's a huge disappointment to me, uh, this entry, as far as the text piece of it. I think they were just bound and determined to keep it as short as possible because the art is so large and fills the space and is beautiful um, that I think it's a bit of a detriment to it. Hmm. All right. Someone needs to start a question. Podcast or blog said that. Books. I know, I'm repeating you it. said that. Uh, next up is Karak. Uh, which first appeared in Tales of Teen Titans number 51. I'll admit, I don't care about this one at all. I, this does not need to be a listing. I'm sorry. I know there's a lot of storylines going on, involving in this country, but to me, this is this is not Paradise Island. This is not Gotham City. This is no, this does not need to be a listing. I would argue, though, it's certainly more meriting a listing than The Protector. I, uh, I, at least The Protector's a character. I, but just to me, a land... The character would never appear in a DC comic. I guess so. I mean, I don't know. A landmass? I, I, yeah, I mean, whatever. I, well, they, it, it de- was getting a lot of play in Suicide Squad and books like that. Um, and this entry was clearly written by John Ostrander. If you know John Ostrander, you know he loves geopolitical mm. stuff. And this, is, this entry is like out of a textbook. I mean, it's, it's like I didn't even know what parts were real and what parts he made up. It's so factual based. So 
If you want more on Korak, uh, the best place to probably seek out is the Task Force X podcast, again, covering Suicide Squad. And wrapping it up is Rampage. Oh, excuse me. Rampage, which is, I think, the only character we have that has an has a punctuation in her name. In their in name? In her logo, at least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's right on the cover, it's just Rampage. Just you say it normal. But but it's Rampage! exclamation mark, Kind of like Scott Shaw! Right. Um... Yeah, it's John Byrne, another one of the new Superman villains he created. She first appeared in Superman number seven. Uh, she's this kind of milk toasty girl that transforms into this giant she hulky type thing, and she's got a sort of savage She-Hulk costume. Her like a chain mail kind of thing is covering her boobs and her leg, and then she's got she's got a mohawk. Our third female mohawk of the DC universe. <laughs> of this issue. Uh, it's a really good drawing. It's John Byrne doing Superman, and you know she looks suitably. She's a big muscle chick, and there's a nice close up of her burying Superman into the dirt with her foot, which is uh, I really enjoy. Well, I like the shot where he's uh, being punched away up into the air, too. Yes. Now, interesting character here because she, uh, her, her real name was Kitty Faulkner, and she was the head of Star Lab, or she was the Star Lab tech, and she eventually moves over to the Will Payton Starman series and becomes a reoccurring character. She's sort of his, uh, his Caitlin Snow or Tina McGee. She's his scientist connection at Star Labs. And every once in a while became Rampage, but she was more Kitty Faulkner in that series. And so she became a supporting character for Starman, which is really cool. That's where I first ran into her. And uh, I like this character. That she is very much a Hulk character, though. A scientist who is exposed to stuff and you know, rages out, can't control it. Now, here's the thing that, if you didn't notice, is going to blow your mind. Take a good look at that chainmail. If you take a good look at it, Byrne took some sort of shortcut here. He, it looks like he took printed chainmail and took a pair of scissors and just cut it out and slapped it on top of here because the chain mail is cut and ends in ways that could only be trimmed on, on a pair of scissors. You see what I'm talking about? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you looking at this electronically or you have the real thing? No, I have the real thing. Okay, look close. Like, look at the chains hanging off uh, on, under her left armpit. Mm-hmm. You can see images of links that don't even connect. That's like, that's like a drawing of chain link. It's, it's almost like he had a clear sheet of paper. That had just chain link on it, and he used a pair of scissors to cut out with the shape of her. Oh, chain I see what you're saying. I see because okay. the links don't connect properly. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, they're just floating there, and they're trimmed. They're, they're literally trimmed off. Yeah. Hmm. It's almost like a zipatone of mm-hmm. some sort. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. Maybe he had like a pattern, and then he just cut it. Yeah, I, yeah it's interesting. Yeah, it's it, it. Once I saw it, I can't unsee it. <laughs> Um, and if you, if you, well, I'll make sure this one's gone on the Tumblr, folks, so you can see what I'm talking about. But it's, uh, it sort of like ruins the whole thing for me because, you know, she's a crazy hot raging woman and now I can't not see that. But if you want more on her, check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast and also someone for the love of God start a Will Payton blog, please. Um, just saying. Okay. You can do a question one too while we're at it since we're going to mention that. That's a good idea. So on the inside cover, that's the end of the issue. At the end of this, uh, on the inside cover, we have where everybody can be found. Lois Lane, of course, is Superman in action. Lords of the Ultra Elm returned in their own special last month. Very exciting. <laughs> the Mad Men are in Blue Beetle. Mentala gave up her life in Legion Superheroes number 26. The Mikado was in the question. Minutemen, Watchmen, you know, pretty much goes through everybody. Nothing terribly. Um, Worth noting here, except at the bottom it says, Karak is the locale of many fights, including Adventures of Superman. Hmm. Okay. There you go. And that's it. That is Who's Who, 87, book four. That's right. Only one more issue, and then this this podcast is over, folks. Yep. 
that will be the end of Who's Who 87 podcast. Um, you know, we may relaunch with, uh, I don't know, Update 88 maybe? I don't know. That'll I be a whole so. new show, though. I guess a whole so. new era. A whole, whole new show. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Um, you know, we're about to get into the listener feedback here and talk about, you know, we're going to do a lot of feedback from a lot of folks. But one of the things I want to mention is uh, we actually have two, two, two people that listen to our show and are big supporters and, and friends, honestly, um, folks I've actually recently met face-to-face that are both in very serious um, health conditions. Um, our buddy Sean Engel has been in the hospital for three weeks now at the time of this recording. Um, was on a ventilator for quite a while of that. Uh, he's, he's getting better. He's getting stronger. But just sending a lot of thoughts, a lot of love out uh, Sean. He's in our thoughts right now. Just found out ourselves. I, I didn't even know this till the other day. Apparently another one of our buddies, David Sopko, who I also met when I was on my trips uh, recently, had, had breakfast with him. He's also in the hospital, and he's in very serious condition right now, Rob. I don't know if you've seen any of this or not. I have, I have. Yeah, um, so our thoughts go out to him and his family, and all we can do is just wish you the best and uh, hope for a speedy recovery. It's, uh, it sounds like it's going to be a difficult road for both of them. So, guys, just know we're thinking about you. All right, getting into the feedback. The very first piece, piece of feedback I want to read is actually from J.M. Matisse. So I reached out to him after we did Who's Who last time where we were talking about how the Creeper was listed in the Justice League International listing because it shows him as a member, and he's dead square in front. So I asked uh, him and Kevin McGuire on Twitter, I said, you know, were there aborted plans for Creeper to join the JLI? He's listed. And uh, Mr. Dematis responded kindly enough. He said he showed up in one of the early issues. Maybe we were considering it, but I sure don't remember. <laughs> yeah. It's a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, we got uh, uh, from a Twitter uh, from uh, Count Drunkillo, which is at Ryan Daly, from the Secret Origins, Flowers and Fish Knots, and Dead uh, Both and Spies, and probably some other podcasts he's working on. He says, don't they usually put 20 to 30 characters on Who's Who covers? I can only see Lady Blackhawk and Kat Matui. <laughs> you and the rest of us, buddy. Um, we got another message from someone named Angson. He says, Constantine was drawn by John Ridgway. He was the Hellblazer artist from issues 1 to 9, original series. You're both doing gangbusters on the podcast. Good job, guys. Thank you, Angson. I honestly didn't know who that was, but once you said John Ridgway, it totally makes sense. And that's got to be who it is. That's exactly what I – it was the same reaction. was like once he said it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that of guy, course yep. it's John Ridgway. Duh. Yep. So great call. And Angston, he's uh, a new uh, a new uh, feedback person, so he's new to us. So welcome aboard, buddy. I uh, heard from Jeff Nettleton. He said, "You." and by the way, it should mention, we're just reading snippets from everyone's feedback because I compiled all of the feedback that we received from just the last episode, and it's 24 pages. Who's who gets a lot of feedback. Yes, it does. So we're just reading snippets, so if we don't read your favorite, from what I understand from Michael Bailey, he says we always read the parts that he didn't intend for us to read, so it happens, I think, to a lot of folks. So just know that we're reading the bits that sort of we felt like were relevant. I also tried to pick, this time very purposely, pick different bits about different characters so we weren't talking about the same characters the whole way through. Anyway, Jeff Nolden and Rose in with a very long missive, but here's some thoughts. He said, you guys beat me to the punch about this issue featuring Lady Blackhawk's Tukas. Uh, I will say for an aviatrix, she has a great tail section and a pretty nice undercarriage. <laughs> it cracked me up. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, he talked about Hymon from the New Gods. I had said that Hymon um, had helped Scott Free escape. He clarified, and, and he's absolutely right, and once he said it, I, I was like, oh, dur, that's right. He said, Scott Free was not actually captured. He was exchanged to Darkseid, who handed over Orion as that pact between Highfather and uh, Darkseid we all know about, which uh, was brought to an end in their initial war. Hymon did help um, Scott Free escape Apocalypse, though. So that was actually not so much he was captured. That was part of that original swap. 
He goes on to say about Doom Patrol. He's, uh, this is the Steve Lytle, uh, Paul Kupperbird era. He says, I really wanted to like it when it was a new series came out. But for the Steve Lytle, for but the Steve Lytle artwork was about the only great part of it for me. When Larson came on board, I really hated his art and quickly dropped the book. Uh, Morrison definitely had more interesting ideas for the team, and I had asked the group what they thought of the Paul Kupperberg Steve Lytle Doom Patrol because I've never read it and I don't hear people talk about it really. Well, it got overshadowed by Grant Morrison. Certainly, it's such a big thing about it. Uh, we got a message from Mike Gillis from Radio versus the Martians and the brand new podcast, the La Vista Baby podcast. Uh, he wrote the who's who entry from the issue guys has covered misspelled Kilowog's name for some reason it really bothered me but not as much as when people forget to put the hyphen in Spider-Man's name a wash in pedantic pedantic nerd shame (laughs) wanted to chime in on the latest debate between Frank Miller's two iconic Batman stories I have to join the majority by saying I also think that Batman Year One is far better than Dark Knight Returns Dark Knight Returns is revolutionary for both comics and character introduced a lot of elements that we still see in Batman comics and movies uh, however, Batman Year One has aged so much better by comparison. Still feels fresh and exciting, even nearly 20 years later where Dark Knight Returns, while still good, just feels quite dated. I'm going to catch hell for this, but it's one of the most overrated comics in the history of the medium. It's very good, but it has no business regularly being compared to Watchmen as its equal. And you can send all hate mail to Radio versus the Martians. <laughs> um, well, first of all, you know, I, I don't think he needed to sort of backpedal and, and be worried about, you know, because he was agreeing with me. About dark, about year one being the better story. So nothing wrong with that, Mike. Keep that up. That's that's good for your health, buddy. Uh, your doctor will tell you that. But as far as Dark Knight Returns being overrated, you know, I gotta think about that. He he maybe he's right, but he makes. I mean, but it naturally gets compared to Watchmen simply because they both came out at the same time, pretty much. You know. Yeah. So, interesting thought. All right, heard from our buddy Zoom Yukinori from the line it is drawn. Uh, I asked about Kat Matui. I couldn't remember whether she was murdered or died. I knew she was dead at least, but he said, yes, Kat Matui was needlessly murdered by Carol Ferris Star Sapphire in Action Comics 601. Then we spent a lot of time last time talking about the composite Superman characters, which we love oh so much. And he says, I'm surprised that the listener tribute to composite characters did not include Super Duper, an amalgamated Justice League creature with Wonder Woman's head and torso, Batman's torso and utility belt, Flash, you know what, screw it, I don't care. Sorry, Zoom, I'm, no, I'm done, no. <laughs> you people and your composites, I tell you. Anyway, uh, then he shared with us, you know, Zoom is famous on this show for creating custom who's who pages. Ones that look like they literally fell out of the book and should have been published. Well, he created one for Rob not too long ago, Aqua Rob. He created one for me, Fireshag, as well as, you know, your, your Superman from Earth One, Wonder Woman from Earth One. He created one for himself for the line it is drawn. It's a lot of fun. It's really, you check it out on the line it is drawn. It's Professor Zoom, and it's a great entry. It looks just like it came out of Who's Who. And uh, it's it, really nice. I like it quite a bit. Yeah. Coloring's really nice on it, too. It's wonderful. It's, 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 yeah. He's amazingly consistent with the quality that he does with these things. Uh, we got a message from Siskoid, from Siskoid's blog of Geekery, Legion of Super Bloggers, and the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, which gave a big shout-out to us in the last episode, so thanks very Aww. much for that, guys. He actually played clips from us. He says that regarding the cover, I think Rob is dead on for Lady Blackhawk's pose, but how do we explain Kat Matui acting like a pinup girl? Other fun bit, the relationship between Lion Man and Manticore. Guardians of the Universe. So Lady Blackhawk gets a lot of play for her upskirt, but these guys don't? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, he talks about Hazard. And he says, it's all well and good, the dice motif, but the way... <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't stop laughing about this one. Um, it's, it's all well... Because I talked about Hazard's costume. 
And I said it looks sort of like a, a reincarnation of the gambler. You still get the steamboat feel, steamboat gambler feel from her costume. So he goes on to say, it's all well and good, the dice motif. But the way it's laid out makes it look like dominoes. Terrible, terrible costume, too. It's as if Zatanna worked in a fast food chain. And the minute I read that, I about fell out of my chair. And I can't unsee it. He is absolutely right. That is the Captain D's. Uh, you know, outfit that the employee wears at the gambler-themed restaurant. I mean, is absolutely what that is. At uh, holy crap, dead on. Well, well done, Siskoid. If you don't know what a Captain D is, it's the fast food fish place. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Ian Carcool, uh, he covered that over on his Siskoid's blog of geekery. Um, he, you know, he has that segment called "Who's This." Or who's that? Oops, I forget what it's called. Anyway, go out to Cisco's blog or Geekery. He's do, he does it in entry every, you know, every every couple weeks. He does these things. They're fantastic. Then uh, he talks about the jihad. He says, great, great, great antagonist for the Suicide Squad. They only showed up uh, once at this point, but their attack brings fond memories of the Duchess Lashina beating Manicor, um, where, she, where Duchess slash Lashina beat Manicor with his own tail. And he says, Shag is right. Saying that, uh, Suicide Squad is still super readable. One of the best books of the '80s and of all time. The concept was never done as well as Ostringer did it, and in fact, is pretty terrible in anyone else's hands. Hmm, that's fair. I went on uh, cheerleading the Mister Miracle book that was uh, published about parallel to the JLI book. I really enjoyed that series. And then he says, "Yes, uh, n- nice little series. At first drawn by Ian Gibson before Phillips came on, it was lighthearted and a good companion to what they were doing in Justice League." You know what? Go check that out. Look in the 50 Cent Bins. I'm sure it's out there. It's the Mr. Miracle book from the late 80s. A lot of fun. Only went like maybe 14, 20 issues, something like that. Really enjoyable. He covered Kite Man as well in his uh, in those entries he does on his page, Who's Kite Man? You check that on Cisco's blog at Geekery. Because everybody loves Kite Man. I mean, it's it sort of, you know, I didn't, in all the comments, I didn't see anything negative about Kite Man. I think everyone fell in love with the character like we did because he's so ridiculous. And then he says, the plan for who's who in the Legion. Now, you and I, Rob, you keep saying that you're going to go on hiatus or you're going to join the army or something before we go to the who's who in the Legion. All I'm saying is I get a lot of grief from everybody for not having read every goddamn word in these issues of who's who. I'm not putting myself through that for who's who in the Legion because I'm barely going to look at the artwork. So I think it's probably a good idea that we get some guests. Well, he says, Shag basically fathered the Legion of Superbloggers so he could use and abuse us when the moment comes. No worries. So I'm not going to reveal my plan just yet. But yes, let's just say the Legion of Superbloggers plays a big role in our coverage of the uh, Who's Who in the Legion comics. So, heard from our buddy Bradley Null. Um, and he's talking about these updates. He's comparing them to the original ones. And he goes, this is the post-crisis universe in a raw, primal form. Many of the flaws that will make Zero Hour needed start in this time. It can be seen in this series. Ideas that are remembered that went nowhere are here, too. The first series was fun, but this one is historically fascinating as well as fun. I think it's a really nice uh, summation of, of the updates. It really is. And it's, it's very fitting. He's right. It is... Uh, it is a time capsule for what the DC Universe looked like at this time, whereas the original Who's Who series sort of celebrated all 50 years. We talked about the Gray Man last issue and how the dream, how he was capturing people's dream essence. And I said, I wonder how if that played into the Sandman series, just because it's been so many years since I've read Sandman. He wrote, the dream essence the Gray Man collected was part of an offer made to dream by the Lords of Order in an attempt to buy hell back from him. Wow. I completely forgot about that. I, have, I, I need to go back and reread the same end series. It, I remember reading it when it came out. I thought it was one of the most incredible books I'd ever read. And uh, it obviously still holds up. I mean, everyone's reading these things still to this day. I, I really need to make the time. I, I loved it. It'd be great. 
Then uh, he gives a lot of running commentary as he goes through this, but I'm going to hit on three particular ones. It says, this was the worst time for GL fans. There are no Guardian fans, but it was a bad time for them as well. Several other comments. Then he goes, this was the worst time for GL fans. Cat looks good, but bad drama. More comments. This was the worst time for GL fans. Kilowog isn't even cool yet. <laughs> uh, he takes me to task. He says, Rob, you're on the wrong side of the double space issue. I honestly don't know how I've gotten so associated with this. I wrote about this one time on Facebook. And somehow this has become my defining personality trait that I'm against the double spaces after periods. So I don't know. I just You took a very passionate position, sir. I know, but I mean I literally wrote about it one time. But then on we talked about Facebook. it on the podcast too. Well, I know, but I mean it's just like I don't know. It's just weird. But it's fine. That's and, I, and I and I'm put... not wrong. It's one Space, Bradley. <laughs> you put it on Facebook, it never goes away. I guess so. He says, keep mentioning the podcast. We love that. And uh, that's been a little debate between Rob and I. Rob can't stand it when I sit there and drag the shows out even longer like I'm doing with this very long sentence at this moment. But uh, the fact that I give shout-outs to all the other podcasts where you can find the characters, I think a lot of the folks take it, yeah, appreciate that. So I'm glad to hear it. And he says, no one loves Northwind. It should be a sitcom. <laughs> And then he finally ends it with, "I want to see the I want to see an Alan Davis series written by Aquaman." I think he means drawn because Alan Davis doesn't write things, as far as I know, does he? Does Alan Davis well, write stuff? The whole sentence structure is all flipped around, though, because he says, "I want to see an Alan, Alan Davis, Davis series, series written, written, written by, by Aquaman." Aquaman. Oh, I see. Which would be amazing. I'd love to see a comic about Alan Davis written by Aquaman. That'd be so cool. <laughs> it would be kind of interesting. Can't be any worse than what we're doing, going through right now. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, all right, I'll, I'll I'll be up for that. I mean, why not? <laughs> Thank you, Bradley. So uh, we heard from Wolfgang Hartz. He says, "Gotta love that L-shaped building in the Lex Luthor surprint." I do, I do. The L-shaped building is fantastic. Heard from Joe X. He says, uh, "Barreto draw does draw a nice butt." Yes, he does. I would completely agree with you, Joe. He says, "Hybrid," which we took oh, a whole lot of punches at last time. Hybrid was very much an attempt by Marvel Open to create a new X-Men. These characters only appeared once or twice, and they were killed off-screen by Roulette. In the JSA, which is hilarious. Apparently, there was also, by the way, this is the show. I was reading in other comments. There was plans for a hybrid Siri ongoing, uh, which did, didn't come to be, thank goodness. But I think it's hilarious that she, they were killed off screen by Roulette, and she they were on her wall of like the Fallen, which is great. He says, Icicle did indeed end up married to Artemis slash Tigress. So I was right about that last uh, episode. And he says, Iron Man Rowe was in Aquaman as well, wasn't he? There was a, there was a mini young All-Stars reunion with him, Neptune Perkins, and Tsunami. I, was Iron Man Rowe in that run? I am, I, that was... I it was a Peter David Peter run, David so I know you don't era. like it. Yeah. I did. I'm a fan of that run. I remember Neptune Perkins and Tsunami being in that run. They yes, brought in all the Atlantean characters. Yeah. They brought in yeah. Arian. They brought Power Girl. They, it was like an uh, Atlantis reunion. Um, maybe he was there. I don't recall. So uh, Let's see. He goes on to say, this was a great – oh, the Justice League one. He goes, um, or he goes, there was a great bit in a Justice League story that had Kilgore and the Construct having a family in what was essentially a jail for AIs. I remember that. That was a very clever storyline. And how do you keep an AI locked up in a computer? You create a false reality for them. And that's how they, they handled Kilgore and Construct. So very, very clever. Glad he brought that up. Heard from our buddy Anthony Durso. goes by the Toy Room. Uh, I had mentioned last time that there was a scale of hotness. Now, he got his greater than symbols backwards here. He actually has them flipped around. But, yes, the scale goes hot. Then they're super hot. Then they're smoking hot. And then this week when my friend Rob posted the poster for 
um, for your eyes only, I realize there's even scorching hot, which goes above that. So hot, super hot, smoking hot, and scorching hot. So there you go, folks. That is the scale. Regarding the Justice League entry, this is without a doubt one of the greatest pieces of art in any edition of Who's Who. Silver Age, Bronze Age, Toy Era, JLI. The choir makes it all work and mesh together quite nicely. I agree, Anthony. That is one of the bestest things they did. And it's, yeah. it's nice to see all of our JLAers together. Beautiful. It's, it's what the first time should have been. The first one that we got yep. Luke McDonald instead. Mm-hmm. Kilowog. At one point, wasn't a who's who in the Green Lantern Corps on the docket, along with who's who in the Legion and who's who yes, in Superman? That's true. Yes, it was. Because I wonder if all these GL-centric pages were originally designed to appear there. That's very uh, possible. Now, it may have been more like they were planning a, like what they did with who's who in the Legion, which is not a straight who's who book, as Rob will find out soon enough. But um, <laughs> it could be. It could be that those were leftover, you know, leftovers from the Green Lantern book that never came to be. Hmm. Uh, he says, regarding Kite Man, I first encountered this character in Batman 314. Len Wein was bringing back some of the older villains like Kite Man and Calendar Man. <laughs> I always had a soft spot for this type of gimmick character. In fact, I made a custom Mego action figure of several of the Batman's lamer foes of Ugo's, including Kite Man. <laughs> I'd you know, love to see that, Anthony, because his custom Mego boxes are great. They are the 3D equivalent of Zoom's Who's Who pages. Yes. Well, he says he made figures, not the box. This time he didn't, because he makes boxes, but he says he made figures. Well, well, he makes both. Well, okay, he's done both. Yeah. Uh, I assume that he made a box as well. I would like to see the whole bit, because it's just probably completely amazing. I, I have one of his Firestorm boxes he sent me. I love it. Absolutely love mm-hmm. it. You know, um, I wonder now, in hindsight, there was a great episode of Batman Brave and the Bold that I, featured Firestorm, actually, on um, the first one with Firestorm. And they go to a supervillain bar and get into a big brawl, and it's just full of these, like, 1950s ridiculous characters. Like, one looks like a pencil with a giant eraser head. And um, apparently all those characters were based on actual comic book characters. I wonder if Kite Man is in there. I might have to go back and check that out. Uh, He said, Legion of Subs. (laughs) When you have to create subs for the subs, you know you've run out of ideas. (laughs) Because that was the the replacement Legion of Superheroes. I'm sorry, replacement Legion of Substitute Heroes. Anyway. Uh, then he says, I just realized that I missed an opportunity for a shameless self-promotion. He has a Facebook page called Secret Origins of a Comic Collector. So if you go out to Facebook and, you know, Facebook.com, it's Secret Origins of a Comic Collector. Check it out. Like his page and uh, tell him the Who's Who podcast sent you. Then we heard from our buddy Ange, who's having a great couple of weeks. Uh, he runs the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, with the Supergirl show. I mean, wow, he is flying on uh, cloud nine right now. Hell, they're about to introduce Reactron on the show. I mean, he's just he he's uh, he's as happy as a pig in what is it? Uh, we got it. I think we okay. All there we go. Anyway, and he's part of the Legion of Super Bloggers. So anyway, Guardians of the Universe. There was nothing a young lonely. <laughs> There's nothing a young lonely Ange wanted to hear more than that the wizened short blue Owens were suddenly getting play with the gorgeous Zamorans. If they could get a date and I couldn't, how unlovable was I And he, as he puts on a Smith's tape? <laughs> Perfect. All these glimpses into Angie's life are fantastic. Uh, regarding Hyman, I agree with Rob's linguistic dilemma. Is it Hyman, like me trying to sound Jamaican, or like a female anatomic part? Reminds me of a joke here. Oh, boy. What does Becca sleeping with Orion have in common with her moving into a place alone? No hymen. Oh! Oh! <laughs> and man! This, and this man is responsible for people's lives. And he is a doctor, that's right. And he's responsible for a Supergirl blog. So, you know, he just put, you know, young girls are looking to him for 
guidance. All right. Um, John Constantine. Uh, we talked a lot about him. He goes, Jamie Delano's John is my Constantine. All the swagger, but it's just a facade to cover a tormented soul. I thought Enos' stuff was okay, but I would even rank Paul Jenkins' run over Enos, and I am prepared to be carved up for this. You know, interesting. I, you don't see a lot of people jumping to the Jamie Delano books as their uh, Constantine, and you know, it's it's perfectly merited. There's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't be. So I think that's great. He stepped forward to say that. Uh, we heard from Michael Curascuro, uh, the guy who's responsible for that non-existent Batman and the Outsiders blog. He said, Injustice Unlimited. Stunning. That's such a classic image for such a D-list group. This is the one by, um, uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, Jerome K. Moore. Okay. Anyway, uh, he says, it makes them imposing and powerful. I'm with Rob. Jerome K. Moore was terrific back then. I still have a large number of issues of Detective Comics where he drew the Green Arrow backup feature, written by Joey Cavallari, and I haven't... Uh, and I haven't, hadn't looked at them in ages until recently. I loved Moore's art in that run as a kid, and I'm happy to report that upon a reread, I still love it. It's just perfect. Strong superhero work that screams DC in the 80s to me. I have no idea why he never had a solid run on a high-profile book, or at least I don't know of any that he did. It's seriously, it, you know, that's a good question, folks. Does anyone know of any long runs Jerome K. Moore did on Heroes? Because I, I think all of us would be thrilled to read hey, that. He did Green Arrow in the back of Detective Comics. Okay, and that's what he's referring to here, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, but that's, so, but that's the only one that, I can think of, yeah. Yeah, I guess he didn't do a full-run series. Okay. Um, then he leapt to the defense of the Englehart Green Lantern Corps run, because we we really were hitting it hard the last couple of issues of this, of this book. He says, I love the Englehart run on Green Lantern Green Lantern Corps. Back in the 80s are some of my favorite comics of that era. I know they haven't aged especially well, but they are loaded with melodrama. Silly, um, I'm sorry, uh, I know they haven't aged well, especially well as they are loaded with melodrama, silly but fun villains and great action scenes, plus Dave Gibbons and Joe Staten on art. And I noticed a lot of folks online aren't big fans of Staten's. Shag, you seem to think that he was worse during this Green Lantern phase, in fact. I don't see it. I think his cartoony style was awesome and a real highlight of any story I read that he illustrated throughout most of his career. And Kat Matui is easily one of my favorite underused women of DC characters. I love that long story arc about her training John when it, he took over for Hal. I still can't believe they killed her like that. Awful. Her portrayal in Justice League Unlimited was fantastic, too. It, it really it actually warms my heart to hear these people step forward and support the Green Lantern book. I'm not a fan, obviously. But you know what? I want everyone to love something. I want every comic to be loved by somebody. So I'm very pleased to hear their supporters out there. It says, oh boy, I just heard the listener feedback with Shag calling me out about that Batman and the Outsiders blog threat of mine. I confess I've done absolutely nothing in the past month or two since that comment. I still have dreams to do so, my friends. I do. One day, I will make it real. You know what, buddy? I'm not going to let up till this happens. I, I, I pushed the Legion fans to put together a blog. I'm pushing you, pal. Come on. Let's see it happen. You know, maybe if we created like a fire and water network, we could convince Michael to do a Bato show because we could just give him a place for him to put it. Maybe so. Maybe so. Probably not. They're not going to do anything like that. Anyway, uh, we got a message from Earth to Chris for the Supermates podcast. I grew a beard while listening to this episode of Who's Who, and I just shaved it after listening to a Secret Origins episode. <laughs> All right, we get it. They're long. Deal with it. <laughs> then he goes on to say, uh, Hippolyta. They spelled her name wrong on the cover, even for this version. I don't think I picked up on that. <laughs> the cover, then her name on the cover and the inside didn't match up. Oh, yeah, I didn't notice that. Canto. 
which was, uh, you know, one of the uh, characters from the New Gods. He says he made some appearances on Superman the Animated Series, voiced by Michael York, no less. Cindy and I will definitely be covering some of the Superman the Animated Series on Supermates. Ooh, I can't wait. I can't wait for that. I love the Superman Animated Series, so I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, it was an underrated show. I blew my stepson's mind. We were in a we were in the movie theater, uh, getting ready to watch. I don't know what we saw, what did we see recently. I don't know the movie, whatever. And that there's that commercial that comes on now um, for some health condition, and the guy from Wings. Oh, Tim Daly comes out. Yeah, Tim we Daly saw comes that in front out, of right? Spectre. Yeah. And he's talking, and I said, I turned to my stepson, and I said, "Close your eyes." He's like, "Okay." And I said, "That's Superman talking." And he's like, "What? Oh my gosh, it is!" <laughs> It's just weird. Tim Daly's wandering around giving people medical advice. Um, uh, another comment regarding Kite Man. Thanks for the brave and bold stinger. I wish Mattel had made a figure of this guy with real flying action. That'd be awesome. <laughs> he goes on to say, Lex Luthor was a fat guy in a suit in the, and in the later Golden and early Silver Ages, too. So the Kingpin influence may just be a coincidence more than anything else. Byrne built a great motivation for Lex to hate soups. I agree. I, I love Lex Luthor in the post-crisis universe. I think he's totally a badass. I have no interest in him in the pre-crisis universe, and I have no interest in him in the, in the New 52 universe. But in the post-crisis world, I really like where Lex was coming from. Heard from our buddy Martin Gray, Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. Uh, that's at dangermart.blogspot.com. Now, if you don't know, uh, Martin is actually from Naboo, and he's Scottish. So Anyway, he says, I'm with Zoom. Surely Kite Man was named by Tony Isabella in the 80s. I've seen the Grand Comic Database entries mentioning his name as Charles Brown before Hawkman Volume 2, Number 4, but I think that's an overzealous chronicler. Ah, and here's Tony Isabella on Kite Man's secret ID on Twitter. He wrote back to, um, Tony Isabella wrote back to Martin Gray because that was my idea and one of my proudest moments in comics. <laughs> uh, he says Shag is entirely correct, Rob. That just you, can, you can stop right there. Shag the is Justice entirely. League, stop talking. The Justice League entry isn't taking a swipe at Aquaman. The low point was, in fact, nobody showed up. Not that Aquaman ran a version of the league. Yeah, I guess probably a little overly sensitive to that. So, okay. You were. You were a crybaby about that last episode. Oh, I was like, jeez. Oh my God! So he says, uh, I tweeted, <laughs> I tweeted you lads uh, of the first time I saw the Brian Boland Zinda, meaning uh, Lady Blackhawk, from a 1981 UK fanzine. I'm pretty sure he drew her a few other times before working for DC. And yes, this is the British Britain's Comic News Fanzine, BEM, and uh, 50 pence. And on the cover is in fact a Brian Boland Zinda, Lady Blackhawk, who looks like she's got no neck. Um, not his greatest rendering. Still kind of sexy, but still not his greatest rendering. Yeah, it's early in his career. Yeah, and it's got Cerebus on there, too. So. Then he says, uh, Iron, Iron Monroe, yawn. Gladiator was adapted by Marvel Comics in Marvel Preview number 9 under the title Man-God to avoid confusion with the X-Men Gladiator because readers are stupid. Uh, it was a very sexy read from Roy Thomas and Tony DiZaniga. Dizan, Dizan, how do you say that? DiZaniga, I believe. Thank you. And, and, and I will tweet you the amazing Earl Norum cover. And yes, this is Marvel Preview, presents Man God, and it's a great looking cover. And yes, it is based on, this is from the blockbustering, blockbusting novel Gladiator by Philip Wiley. It's a really great cover. So yes. very cool. I didn't even know that existed. So yep, that might be yep, worth checking yep. out. Her from Boston Moss. He says, I have to agree with you on McFarlane. The guy does great capes, icicles, webbing, heck, even phone cords, but not so great with anatomical. Purple. Anatomical. It's getting late, folks. Proportions. Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, he mentions phone cords. I always think of McFarlane and phone cords because the probably the first McFarlane comic I ever read was Infinity Inc., like a, a crisis crossover. And he uses a telephone cord as panel borders for these people that are having a phone conversation. 
And I always think of that. I remember so, that. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. So uh, he mentions Lion Mane. Why did DC give Don Heck work? Other than when he does westerns, I just don't see the appeal in his art. You know, Don Heck was in the 50s and 60s and even in the 70s a really great artist. And I think by the time he got to the 80s, you know, he had been in the industry a long time. Superheroes was not his forte. But, you know, he deserved to get work and because it was, you know, it was kind of like these guys were lifers. So, you know, I, I think it was nice of them to sort of give Don Heck work, even though I think a lot of people didn't like it a whole lot. I think they were kind of being loyal to a very reliable artist, and that's that's a nice thing. So I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm not gonna complain too much about it. I would agree, and same yeah. goes for a few of the others in Who's Who. They mm-hmm. they deserve to keep working. So and it's in Who's Who supposed to be a celebration of DC's history. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, heard from Jeff R. He usually comes over with our egregious omission every issue. He goes a slim issue for omissions this time. The winner would have to have been the Firestorm related pick of the month as well. King Crusher. Out of all the Spider-Man villainy, Firestorm foes, meaning Spider-Man's foes are very Spider-Man, fo- sorry, Firestorm's foes are very much like Spider-Man's foes, because King Crusher may have been the Spider-Man villainist, meaning the most Spider-Man-like villain. Yeah, it could be. King Crusher, actually, interestingly enough, appeared in the issue with, uh, it's very complicated. But the Sand Demon character from The Flash is tied to King Crusher. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Mark Baker Wright from the Transforming Seminarian blog he said count my vote for Hunatics but I'm guessing the infamous should, infamous should be on the first syllable rather than the second so it rhymes with lunatics so Hunatics <laughs> there you go there's another name suggestion I got a message from someone just named Clark he says uh, did we ever come up with a name for, for, for us fans to be called I need to know I must be labeled pretty sure that's Canada Clark by the way okay so uh, yeah, he, so we we we're not ready to label everybody yet, Clark. Sorry, we're working on it. We we have been compiling all these labels and uh, we're 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 mulling them over. There's a couple I like more than others. We'll so have we'll it done see. by the loose leaf edition. I really do like hooligans, by the way. I really like hooligans, but we'll see where it goes. Uh, we heard from Benton Gray. It's been ages since we heard from Benton. He said, "I enjoy this episode, but I have to ask, what's with all the Hawkman hate? He is the first person to take us to task, I believe, on our." Our bashing of the Hawkman series. Uh, he goes, he goes, we bash the Hawkman series? I, I thought I said I really liked the Hawkman series. Well, I mean, we, we go after Darkhawk or Darkwing really well, hard. all right. But I, and then we went after Lion Mane really hard. I mean, right. pretty much every character that's appeared in here from that series, we've beat on pretty harshly. Okay. So. All right. Anyway, he goes, um, why the disregard for Hawkman Volume 2? Those are, for my money, the best Hawkman books around. They gave the character and his world some great development, made boring one-dimensional characters from the original series interesting, and introduced some really compelling story arcs. What Isabella did with the Gentleman Ghost and his mystery set up for, for the Commissioner Emmett were both really intriguing. And he says, yeah, Darkwing had a ridiculous costume. But despite of that, he was a pretty good villain, the anti-Katar. The Dark Reflection is always a fruitful archetype for a villain. Again, I want every comic to be somebody's favorite, so I'm thrilled to see someone is a fan of this series. We got a message from Tim Wallace of Court Industries and a recent guest on my Film and Water podcast and a soon-to-be future guest on my Film and Water podcast show. I wonder what that's like. Keep wondering. He says, I I know I'm late, (laughs) but I was on... I I watch movies, too! But I was on... (laughs) I know what I like. But I was on vacation. Hey, I invited you to be on the show a couple weeks ago, and you said no. So don't even start. What did you invite me on for? Rear window. Okay, my wife was having surgery. That was no, no, no. All right, never. Mind. All right, we'll we'll argue about this all fair. But I was on vacation. I just finished catching up with most, but not all of my favorite podcasts. So the hybrid. 
I just finished covering the three-part Blue Beetle arc featuring the hybrid and Teen Titans on the blog. What can I say? It's over. And I figured I wouldn't have to think about them ever again until I listened to this episode. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's a hybrid. It's a hybrid. They're, I think they're going to be our new punching bag for a while. Or from Jose Rivera. He goes, of all the issues you've done, I've been looking forward to this one. Now, he's been talking about this for months. So, of all the issues you've done, I've been looking forward to this one the most, as it was the first issue of Who's Who I ever owned as a kid. I'd read a couple issues here and there from my family and friends, but this is the first one I ever bought that I can remember the day I got it well. My dad took my sisters and I out for a walk that weekend. We'd usually go to the 86th Street, which was nearby, but had a lot of story, stores like HMV, Tower Records, Woolworths, Barnes & Noble Jr., and so on. Sadly, all those stores are gone now. But there was always a guy on the street with a table set up who sold comics. My dad let me pick out a few comics, and I remember going through the long box he had set up, and I found the issue of Who's Who, along with two issues of the Giffen, Damatisse, McGuire, run of JLI. I poured through those comics uh, time and time again and still have them to this day. I love these Who's Who origin stories, folks. If you haven't sent us your own personal origin story with Who's Who, please send it in. These are some of the highlights of the feedback we get. He says, listening to this episode, I didn't need the comic in front of it because I knew these images by heart. It's funny how things stick in your mind like that. Iron Monroe and the Justice League entry were my favorites about Kalki, Ian Carkroll, and Lion Maiden were my least favorites based on, like, who the hell were these losers mentality <laughs> as a kid? And even as a kid, I could have told you the hybrid were the X-Men. I mean, seriously, look at them. How could they not be? Was the wait, uh, were, was the wait for you guys to talk about this episode worth it? Damn right it was. It brought back so many good memories. Thank you. Keep up the amazing work. Thank you, Jose. Aw, very kind. Very kind. We heard from Diablo Frank, who heads up the Rolled Spine Network, where you can find podcasts such as the Marvel Superheroes, Idol Ahead of Diablo, Underguides, Power of the Atom, Wonder Woman, and like 17 other ones. Um, he says the tacky... All right, he gets on his soapbox and does uh, what they call Frank's Agenda over on the, on the World Spy Network, he goes, the tacky exploitation of Lady Blackhawk on the cover is not acceptable. It makes her look like her purpose among the Blackhawks was in, to entertain the squad, in quotes. Katmatui's pinup posing is also demeaning of a character who is in no way prone to such pandering, and given her murder a couple of years later, marks her as a poster girl for misogyny. This cover is frankly pathetic, as a prostitution of heroines is clearly meant to obscure how boring and lifeless all the other garbage characters are on the front piece. Oof. Mike drop. That's Frank. Uh, he says, I was so adamant in my opinion that you should guys have no guest stars on the original Who's Who that I refused to appear when asked. You guys yep, should get absolutely. guest stars for the update. Yes, you guys should get guest stars for the updates, if only to fill the space currently taken up by Rob sighing across 26 of the 32 pages in each issue. <laughs> you did sigh over quite a few this issue. Okay, no comment. Um, the lead-up to Green Lantern Corps number 200, the tied into Crisis, was one of the all-time best runs of the property. But a few highlights aside, Ubixel, uh, Dr. Ubixel, that is, Steve Englehart indulges stupidity from then on and until the death of that series. John Stewart was the best corpsman, and seeing him sidelined by seven other moronically stationed on Earth fighting losers like the not-wrecking crew and Baron Tyranno whatever caused capillaries to burst in my eyeballs. <laughs> He went on to talk about the Infinity uh, Inc. villain Hazard. How many thighs does Hazard have? Because Tyson Chicken wants McFarlane's secret recipe. <laughs> That's great. Uh, he's talking about Iron Man Row. He goes, I really dig Iron Man Row as the low powered early Superman slash gladiator riff that went on to become a poor man's Doc Savage as a government stooge to the thriftier segments of the DC universe, mostly meaning damage. 
He's one of those pleasingly utilitarian characters that don't matter in the grand scheme of things, but are a real friend to writers working in a shared universe. I always wanted to write a 50 series set where Control slash Argent forms a sort of Cold War plainclothes espionage squad out of the lesser heroes who compiled the uh, HUAC and then were recruited to serve their country in secret. Either Armin Rowe or King Faraday would be the hand-wringing good cop of the group, and Hank Haywood Sr. would be the flat-topped, hard-case racist bad cop. That would have been a hell of an interesting series. You know, um, Bendis and uh, Howard Chaikin, I think it was, maybe, or Neil Adams, tried to do an Avengers 55 or Avengers 56 or something like that storyline where it was about like a group of Avengers that came together, you know, in the old days, sort of like this. Or even, even maybe even better, it was the New Frontier suggestion where you had the, you know, the challenges of the unknown working with some of the characters. I would love to read a like 1950s based DC era group of heroes, you know, that are, like you said, plain clothes, sort of man from uncle. That would be really cool. He says, uh, Frank continues, his nice bid to restore the good name of the Legion of Substitute Heroes, except the name wasn't ever that good, so just bring the funny already. <laughs> he talks about Lex Luthor. He says, I could never get into slim, fast Kingpin. Anyway, I never liked the Gene Hackman take on Lex and only got into the character after his Underworld Unleashed revision. Superman's rogue gallery was already overstuffed with visions of human frailty, and it was hardly comes off as a man of steel when battling non-powered middle-aged diabetics with a sartorial insanity, bad teeth, and worse hairlines. When Neuron remodeled Lex Luthor as a sexy Mr. Clean hybrid of physical... Uh, of physical Legion of Doom Dynamo, an untouchable businessman politician, that finally struck the proper note for me. Man, Frank is just, he's got a great gift for words. <laughs> really does. Heard from my friend Stella from the Backworld Oracle, a, back, uh, a Barbara Gordon podcast. She writes in because a couple of uh, episodes ago on the Fire and Water, she basically uh, announced she was supplementing uh, or supplanting Rob as the host of co-host of Who's Who 87. So uh, she's a little upset that she's supposed to be the co-host that Rob's still here. And then I had said that it's going to take her decades to get to the Birds of Prey issues because she's doing an index show where she follows Barbara Gordon's history from the beginning to the, uh, to, to the end, I guess, of uh, the, new, the, the beginning of the New 52. And they're in, she's finishing up Suicide Squad now, and I said it's going to take her decades to get to the Birds of Prey issues where Lady Blackhawk shows up, and she took a great offense at that and said how rude. So I don't know if that was an intentional Star Wars quote, but I, I, I dug it. We've got a message from Daniel Budnick. He says, uh, I think this is a new commenter. Thank, yep. Welcome, Daniel. My who's who story? Funny you should ask because I have one. December 1984. Let's put some music here. <laughs> Iron Dequite, New York. That's a hell of a name. <laughs> a suburb of Rochester. Throughout the 1980s in December, generally on a Sunday, my family would go to a local mall and all us kids would do our Christmas time Christmas shopping. It was a good time. Sweetened by the fact that we would round off the gift buying by getting ourselves something. One year I got a Monty Python record. One year I got a Samantha Fox, the pop star poster. <laughs> well, I don't think you need to tell us it was 1984 by that comment. One year I bought <laughs> Peter Gabriel 3 on cassette. In 1984, I bought some comics. <laughs> he goes on, he talks about uh, some of his experience doing that. Uh, he talks about Doctor Who even, so thank you for that. And he goes, uh, Who's Who completely fascinated me. I knew that DC history went on forever, but this was pretty astounding. I'd always been a fan of encyclopedias and in-depth reference materials, but to encounter a reference work of that sort, all about comic book characters, the best! I obviously love this issue. Thanks to Who's Who, for the next two to two and a half years, I became a crazy comic book collector. 
Then he goes on to say, in late 1987, I discovered horror movies and girls. My interest in comics waned. But now, after listening to the first ten episodes of your podcast, my interest is returning. I want to learn more about Calendar Man, take Dolphin to a movie, and go trick-or-treating with Gentleman Ghost. (laughs) We are not responsible for any damage that might do to your love life. (laughs) Fair enough. Or from my buddy David Gutierrez, he was very excited at at the Shag Hot Scale, so he should be even more excited today to find out there's a new level with Scorching Hot. So... Uh, we talked about David Sopko, and I don't know if this is a little bit of black humor or what, but uh, we're going to give it a shot. He, uh, he, well, he mentioned to me, he says, of course, three entries in, and Rob has admitted to not reading the, the entry. Yep. <laughs> now, uh, it's, it's because David's not feeling well, I'm not going to drop a burn on him, and trust me, it would have been awesome. So. <laughs> At three in the morning, it'll come to you. Then you'll go, I should have said that on the show. <laughs> I'm going to um, wait till he gets better, and then I'm going to email Just dump on him. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, David Zofko is part of the Shout of the Devil podcast, which focuses on Blue Devil. You can check that out. But the reason why this is the little, the little gallows humor, I guess, is you know he's sick right now. And there's this whole thread that goes on sort of hinting about a, a drinking game and how he could have got hurt in this drinking game because he was counting how many times I said hot. In the previous episode. And uh, I, I'll just pick out one or two of these. He's, uh, he's counting. Like every so often he posts a comment. Shag's up to two. Shag's up to this. And he goes, up to eight now. Shag doubled down on this count in just one entry, folks. <laughs> he goes on to 13. It just keeps going on and on. So the number kept growing. So thank you for that, David. And uh, I'm glad he didn't play a drinking game. Because that may have actually been what sent him to the hospital, if that was true. <laughs> Heard from our buddy Van Z. He's, uh, he's all over Facebook. He's a huge JSA supporter. He goes, I, for one, loved Infinity Inc. and the young all-star characters. However, my plans to start a hybrid podcast have now been canceled. Hey, touch and go. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Zeb Oswalt wrote in and said, cool podcast as always. Can't wait to hear the next one. Abel Padilla, with regards to Shag's combative demeanor on the Who's Who podcast. What is believe, he talking about? I believe that has to do with the, once you stare into yourself, I believe that has to do <laughs> with the gallons of dime Mountain Dew Shag trying to prepare for this, the monthly Labor Day telethon of podcasts. He might even have snuck in a Red Bull, too. Just say no, don't do the do. Hang on just one second. <sighs> that one's empty, folks. I need some more. All right. Heard from Dale Russell. <laughs> If you don't remember last cover, uh, or last episode, we talked about the cover, and we talked about Lady Blackhawk and Kamatui, and we talked about Iron Man Rowe giving a thumbs up, and I made some suggestions about what he was thinking about doing with that thumb. So Dale Russell responds by going, I have a thumbs up for this cover. So clearly he's referencing that. <laughs> uh, Fire Shag and Aqua Rob need to have DC hero stats on little hero cards. That's a reference to the role-playing game, which Rob probably didn't even understand. But uh, I, I totally agree. That would be awesome. We need to work on that. Aaron Head Moss, our buddy who does the Head Speaks podcast, which includes Task Force X and uh, Head Speaks and G.I. Joe, a real American headcast. He said... Uh, I guess this is maybe a Hey Kids Comics reference. I haven't heard this particular episode, but he says the host equal, or maybe it's uh, from Crisis to Crisis. And he goes, the host equals mummy rocket boots. So I think that's a from Crisis to Crisis reference. I have no idea. We'll have to let us know. We heard from Russell Bragg, who does the DC Comics Presents show. Since I believe I'm talking about Who's Who podcast number 16, or XVI, since I do understand Roman numerals. <laughs> That's a crack at me. Uh, he goes, I must take umbrage with you, Rob Kelly. I love The Legend of the Superheroes. I watched, it, I watched it, of course, as a kid and was totally enthralled. I got the DVD. I didn't even know it was on DVD. I got it on DVD a little while ago and watched it. It's still wonderful for me. 
filling me with memories of childhood. The DVD even has outtakes. Who could ask for more? I love both parts, the roast and the adventure. I'd forgotten until the rewatch that the Adam appears. Maybe you would have liked it better if Aquaman was in it. Oh, and no. by the way, I love composite Superman also. Always have. Oh, goodness. Russell hit all kinds of buttons there, didn't he? The fact that you love it, Russell, doesn't mean it's not terrible. <laughs> I like Misfits of Science, and I fully acknowledge that that's not a good job. Two words, Russell. Ghetto man. <laughs> we heard from Gene Hendricks, who does the Hammer Strikes for and uh, several other shows in the Two True Freaks Network. He goes, by the way, uh, what about Hootenannies for the fan name? Yes, I am aware of my mental state comes into question just for remembering the word Hootenanny. <laughs> and you are correct, Gene. It does. <laughs> heard from my buddy, Ravenface, who I've been friends with since I was uh, 12 years old. We used to read Who's Who together. He sent me a link to the Firebug. Remember Firebug from the first round of Who's Who? Apparently the original artwork from Who's Who is on sale right now for, uh, I think it was only like, what, 60 bucks or something? I like almost that? bought it. I almost yeah. bought it. Yeah. It's a, it's at comicartpage.com and then there's a bunch of other stuff. Just to have a who's who page. Yeah. I almost bought it. Even if it's Firebug, huh? Yeah. I was <laughs> like, I don't get it's just the fact that it's a who's who page. Heard uh, from Jimmy McGlinchey. He said, totally agree with you on uh, what you said in the who's who episode. There should be a Justice League International podcast. Yes, there should be, people. It's been more than a month since I said that and nothing's happened. I'm disappointed in all of you. Go in the corner, think about what you haven't done. Uh, Gabriel M. Cox writes in, uh, I totally agree with you, but the Mr. Miracle special drawn by Steve Root, it's a great-looking book. Yes, it was a really, really sharp book. What was, you know, I don't remember that. What was that? Written by that? written by Mark Evanier, drawn by Steve Root. And it's, it was like, it was just a one-off special. And it's, it said it's Evanier worked for Kirby for many years. And so between him and Root, they were able to sort of channel that Kirby energy without just ripping Kirby off. So, You know, maybe did that came out about the same time as the JLI book? Uh, yeah, ish. Yeah, 87. Yeah. I think I may remember that, actually. Okay. Uh, heard from Matthew Thomas Cody. He goes, love the theme songs by the Bad Man Pajamas. He actually had a couple of questions about some of the lyrics, and we set them straight in the comments, so on Twitter. So, thank you, Matthew. Heard from Tom Panarese. He apparently went shopping and tweeted us a picture of some of the Who's Who issues he pictured. Congratulations, Tom. Always good to pick up more Who's Who. And then he wrote, he, he, he did a snapshot of the cover of the last issue of Lex Luthor with a cigar. And he says, not one outdated Lewinsky-Clinton joke? I'm disappointed. <laughs> uh, I am ashamed for not going that way, Thomas. I, uh, Tom, that totally does sound like something I would do. So, Well, I figure uh, that we're going to have uh, probably eight years' worth of chances to make more Lewinsky jokes, so... Uh, oh, I'm not. We're not touching that one, sir. Anyway, moving on. Uh, over on the Fortress of Bailey, Tude, uh, Michael Bailey was kind enough to give us a plug for the Who's Who podcast. Thank you very much. Now, uh, in just a second, we're going to touch on the social media stuff. What we're going to cover are folks that have shared the Who's Who podcast on their own personal social media timeline. And I mean, like, actually, you know, either retweeted it or shared it. I don't mean the favorites and the likes, because if we actually, if we were to cover the likes and the favorites and stuff like that, we'd be here for another hour. And we don't have time for that. So, folks, we're about to cover, again, these are folks that promoted the Who's Who podcast on their own social media on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Google+. Rob, why don't you start us off? Uh, Beautiful Chaos 1976, Aaron Headmoss, Ange, Archer's Knock, Army of Skanks, Between the Pages, Buck, I think that's Buck Rowlett, Chuck Rodriguez, City of Fallen, Castiles, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comics Grump, Daniel Sinoco Adams, David A. Pascarella, David Morgan, David Sopko, Diak TV8, Dabeem, Derek William Crabb, Diablo Frank, Dread, Eli, J. Joe Headcast, Glenn Walker, and Greg A., which is Greg Arusha. Yes, you're correct. It was Buckrella. 
Fuck Fuck Rylat. Fuck Rylat. Uh, head speaks Jared West, John Constantine. John Constantine? Wow. <laughs> not only him, but John effing Constantine. Both of them. Great I'm podcast, making, mate. I'm not making this up. Carl Brusades, Keith G. Baker, Court Industries, Kylo 71, Last of the Known Cockneys, The Legion Bloggers. All right, that, that, that was me. Uh, Lucien Dessar, Luis, Mar- Michael J. King, Mr. Perturbed, Mouse Bites. <laughs> Reminds me of Mouse Rat. Anyway, Mr. Morbid. Only DC Comics, Paul Loves Comics, The Pulp to Pixel Podcast, Rebecca Johnson, Red Lore, Robert Lewis, Rod Pruitt, Shane or Boston Brand, Siskoid, Speeding Bullets, Sin, Task Force X, The Blog of Mystery, The Flash Podcast, The Hammer Strikes, Too Dangerous, and Trekker Talk, Waiting for Doom, and Willie Yarbrough. And a quick special thanks to our buddy again, Bradley Knoll. We mentioned him earlier. He was kind enough to go out on Instagram and share some of his favorite Who's Who pages from our coverage using the hashtag F. W podcast. Thank you very much. Folks, if you want to talk about the show on the social medias, please use that hashtag. Again, that's pound FW podcast. That will help us find your comments. It'll help everyone else find your comments. And we can all communicate and share with each other and tell each other why we think we're wrong because all nerds know how to do is bicker. Um, Bradley also wrote uh, a a nice comment for us on iTunes. He said, love this show. These guys are truly my favorite team of comic podcasters. The Who's Who show is without hype my favorite comic podcast, possibly my favorite podcast in general. Wow. That is strong praise. Thank you so much for that, Bradley. And folks, uh, I'd like actually to make a plea. If you haven't left us an iTunes review and you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you would hop out there and leave us a review. Five star would certainly be appreciated, but put whatever you think is uh, merited. Five stars. It, Five star. <laughs> um, the iTunes reviews really help attract uh, attention to the show and helps people find the show. And quite frankly, we're just a couple of reviews away from 100, and I kind of want to break that barrier. So That'd be cool. Yep. All right, folks, that's going to do it. That is that is it. Boom. Done. And uh, under three hours, Rob. Look at that. Yay. <laughs> now, uh, hopefully, uh, the Supermates folks haven't grown a beard. Well, not Cindy. But anyway, all right, uh, Rob, uh, why don't you tell the folks again the Tumblr where they can find uh, several pages from this issue? It's firewaterpodcast.tumblr.com. The email address is firewaterpodcast.conquest.net. And the blog is firewaterpodcast.blogspot.com. Yep. You can find my friend, and I use the term loosely, Rob, over at the AquamanShrine.net. You can also find him on the social medias on Facebook and Twitter under Aquaman Shrine. Before you, you get f- going, before we finish this up, I have to throw in a couple of plugs for myself, just if you I was about mind. to mind. I was about to mention Film and Water. Well, I was even going to... Oh, thank you. Well, go ahead and plug that. Well, also on Twitter, you can find him as Film and Water Pod, which is thank incredibly you. long and takes forever to write, but Film and oh, Water Pod. Stop it. Anyway, I uh, just wanted to mention, just because we're not quite at three hours, I might as well drag us to that point. Um, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I did a guest appearance on the Long Play podcast, which is part of the Two True Freaks Network. I appeared on with uh, Paul Spataro and Michael Bailey talking about the Trevor Wilberry's Volume 1, which was a whole lot of fun. I don't get to talk about music really at all because I don't have much to say about it except when it's Dylan-related. So it was very nice for them to invite me on. I had a great time, and I think the episode was a lot of fun. And then the other thing I'm doing, which I would love it if people could read, is I am now writing a column for the website 13thdimension.com. Really? And, uh, yes, the column is called Real Retro Cinema, where I am just reviewing an older film and talking about it. If it has a comics connection, 
my first column was about uh, the 1967 film Danger Diabolic. And then just this week I did one on For Your Eyes Only, and I have a third one coming up soon. It's kind of an irregular column, but I've been having a lot of fun writing them, and uh, the best way for them to keep going is if people comment and share them and talk and tell the editor of that site, Dan Greenfield, how much they like them. So if you if you are so inclined, go ahead and read them and let people know, let the site know that, that you like them, because I'm having a lot of fun. That's awesome, dude. Very cool. Well, since we're plugging podcast appearances, uh, just some other podcasts I've appeared on recently that you can check out. Uh, I mentioned Backworld Oracle. I've been on several episodes of that recently. Check out the Secret Origins podcast. I was on uh, the fourth episode and the 20th episode of that. Then over on Dead Both and Spies, I've been on several. And if all goes well, if Ryan ever gets around to recording, I'll be on a few more of those. Then you can check out the Views from the Long Box. I did one recently with Michael Bailey, which should be out fairly soon, where we talk about the DC Cosmic Cards. Looking forward to that. Task Force X podcast I was on there not too long ago, and as well as the Head Speaks podcast and the Flash podcast and the Oof. Legends of the Superheroes podcast. So Oof. I have been whoring myself out on other podcasts lately. So I guess that's going to do it. All right. We um, didn't mention the U Firestorm fan for you. We didn't get to that. Oh, well, you, you guys know where to find me. Firestormfan.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, Tumblr, and Pinterest, all under Firestorm Fan. I am everywhere you want to be. So until next time, I think the only thing left to say is, Rob... Who's next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man. We forgot Slipknot. On network television and in syndication, the animated adventures of Superman, Batman and Robin, Wonder Woman, the Teen Titans, and the rest of the Superpowers team are seen by an estimated weekly audience of 40 million school-age children and teens. In addition to their appearances in live-action TV shows and films, as well as their success in comic book form with young readers across the country. Children and teens trust these characters to give them the right answers and proper advice. So when the Superpowers team speaks to kids, they do so with an authority and commanding a respect that cannot be overestimated. Be a hero!